When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. That's amore. <laughs> Every time. There it is. If you're about to listen to this podcast, there's something you need to know. There's going to be profanity and controversial ideas, because we keep it real. If that's a problem, you might want to listen to something else. All right, all right, all right. Everybody pipe down, because it's time for episode nine of the Sprue Cutters Union. (laughs) (laughs) What, what? (laughs) Okay, well, you've heard Chris and Captain Bean Cheese will... (laughs) So let's just go ahead and get on in there. Let's do it. Let's let's put our waiters on and wait on out into the discussion and the shit talking and the bullshit that leads up to our excellent interview with Adam Wilder. All right, Wilbur, what have you been up to? Ah, honestly, I'm still I'm continuing to just fritter away my time uh, uh, with with randomness. I finally um, got my got my 3D printer dialed in. I think that's been good. Um, I got the Epax X1 4K. I have to say that because it's awesome, and because they put me on their affiliate program. Yep, cut me a cut me a smoking good deal. So, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm stoked. The thing is performing brilliantly. I'm having way more success than I have even any right to expect at this point. Uh, so that's good. Um, I have had some limited success with the foil project. Again, thanks to Jen Wright. Um, she's an automotive refinisher uh, before she joined uh, RAF. And so she knows abrasives and all that stuff at a level that most model makers don't, honestly. Uh, and it, she just she just gets it. And, and she hand-polished a, a test segment to a mirror finish. And I was like, okay, well, fuck, because I was about to give up. And I'm like, well, look, if, if she can do it, you know, it's humanly possible. And so then I polished one by hand and it came out pretty good, um, usable. The first one that I felt like would have been usable. Uh, but what I really want to be able to do is machine sand and machine polish because the project this is ultimately going to be for is large. I don't want to do the whole thing by hand. Um, you know, yeah, it's just it's just too much. Uh, so, yeah, but. Something happens when I when I when I pick up my little Proxon pin sander because it's an angry little machine and uh, I it's just not working. Uh, so I'm on the search. I'm doing the engineer thing. I'm going to try and find some different alloys of foil because aluminum foil is a very particular alloy, and uh, there's companies out there that make other others uh, for specialty applications. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm gonna I'm gonna ring this thing until it's completely dry. And either I have success or I or I just pass out. So we'll see. Uh, but uh, mo- you know, pure model making. Um, I have opened the box on my next project, uh, which is going to be the Ooh, yeah. That's right. That's right. And I know how jelly you were because it is super cool. I'm going to do the uh, the Ming uh, Mong, uh, however the fuck you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, uh, one forty eighth Super Hornet, the A, the F A eighteen E, not the F, because the F's not available yet anyway. But personally, I think the two seater looks like a fucking station wagon, and I'm not into that. So, 
<laughs> I, I love I love the singles, and so and I'm stoked because I you know people talk about like these slammer builds, and I guess that's kind of how I'm treating this because I'm giving myself three months. I'm going to be done by the end of the year, uh, and I'm looking for this thing to be simple. I'm going to go straight out of the box, except for the markings, of course, and uh, just just going to going to get it built and then have fun with all of that filthy gray hornetness that I love so much and uh should be good. So I'm stoked about that. Yep. What about you, Chris? Um well you you'll know I finished the the BF one oh nine. Yeah. And that for me was and, and, and when are we gonna We talked about that last time so we But when are we gonna talk about it, talk about it. Well I got Well we've got a guest coming on uh, hopefully in the next episode, who is an aircraft modeler. And I thought maybe we could ask him to come in on the critique. Oh, very Ooh. good idea. I like that. For sure, yeah. Putting your, yeah. And it just occurred to me that. So, yeah, yeah, he might not go for it. Putting but we, yourself we can under the hot lights. That, for me, was a slammer build. So <laughs> everything else I've got going on at the moment is an eternity of slow death. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a giant conversion, which I'm not allowed to talk about. What you guys know about, and it is like whoa, it's like scratch building three tanks put together because there's so much of it. I've still got to finish that D1, but I finally got the tracks to fit the masters. So, um, Gordon at Neo Mega's casting them for me, but he's been away, so he's gonna cast them for me when he gets back. Yeah, that's, I suppose that's what I've got going on. I've got a new bench. Oh, I fucking love a new bench. Why did you, <laughs> why did you get a new bench? The old one was an old computer table with the thing you pull out you know, for the keyboard and all that crap. And I couldn't get it, so it was a good height. I had a bad back all the time. And I thought, if I can get something that is nearer my shoulder height, then I can be closer to things when I'm scratch building them and everything all the time without bending over constantly and giving myself a bad back. Because this is, you know, us modelers like to think we're really cool. We're actually middle-aged old farts and uh my back really hurts so um yeah it's better height now there's more light it also i've got a window directly in front of it which is brilliant i get loads of light and that now falls directly in onto the bench and it's just beautiful loads of natural light and it's just absolutely lovely and um it's longer but not as deep. <laughs> um. <laughs> that doesn't really work. That, that, that's, that doesn't get it. That, that man. Yeah. No, as a, that doesn't work, but um, it's great. Cause I got more room, but it's easier to reach the window to open it. <laughs> I need to vent the uh, spray booth. So that's good as well. And I need more room. Cause I fill it up with crap instantly. Yeah, we all do. What's your view out of your window? Backyard? Uh, trees. That's nice. It is the backyard if I stand up and lean over, but it actually, it's really nice in spring. You get all the birds, and it's really nice sitting there listening to the birds. Yeah, for and, sure. You know. Although, I also get to hear next door's dog barking quite a lot in the afternoons when they let it out for a shit. So, you know, yeah. it swings around about. Yeah, for sure. Birds are great. Love the birds. That's it, more or less. Got into some internet arguments, the usual stuff. What about you, Hancock? What the fuck are you doing? Well, uh, a bit like Mettings, I've been... Uh, I, I took... New photos of that uh, Frankenhetzer after I um, replaced those wheels and weathered them to match the others. Um, took new photos, which I think came out even better than the original. Um, dug out my old uh, memory card where I had all the construction photos. Been tweaking some of those. 
but then also cleaning up the studio. Um, I was telling Chris before you got on there, I, I ordered a new desk for my uh, my painting bench, uh, which is the one I have now was found on the side of the road. It's made of like lumber, like legit lumber. It's huge. And it does the job. Uh, uh, I had an old roommate who worked on electronics, and he would solder on it and things like that. So it's uh, it's a solder. solder. It's a utility bench <laughs> for sure. Um, but it's it just it's a little clunky. It doesn't need to be as clunky and ugly as it is. And got one of those fancy. Uh, well, at least ordered one of those fancy uh, hobby workstation organizer things with the cubbies and hobby the, zone yeah kind of one of those things it's not the dumb thing with the mat but just like the yeah i thought it was one of those humbro fucking trays <laughs> <laughs> you know like a tv dinner for models <laughs> like a like a vacuum form tray where you can put your mat in no yeah. no i'm just a, attempting to organize it because like you know chris just sent us a photo of his brand new bench which is just a total wreck already but I'm the same way. If I, if I don't have a way to organize things, I pull something out to use it, and it just sits on the bench. Uh, and then I pull something out, out to use it, and before you know it, all my tools, all my glues, all my paints, everything is just all over the bench. And like every other modeler in the world, you get slowly reduced to a smaller and smaller work area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to do something about that. And it doesn't change. It doesn't change no matter how much space you get, because I have... 25 feet of benchtop space in my studio and I'm constantly pissed because I have no place to put anything. Well, flat surfaces accumulate crap. Yep. That's a fact. It's a rule. So yep. Yeah. I'm I'm not actually increasing my flat surface area, but I am giving myself maybe something on the desktop within easy reach that I can organize things so I don't have to have everything sitting all over the table. Uh, and then all the flat surfaces will be for all the fucking projects that I start and don't finish, which I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah, about four of them right now. I that's potentially a subject for a whole show, but I know what you mean. I look at a lot of stuff that I've got half finished and feel guilty about it. Mm. But at the same time, I've come round to the idea that if you're building something and enjoying it, then doesn't fucking matter yeah I think that's, you know the object of it is to sit there and enjoy it it's not to finish the most models. i think that's i think there's a lot of truth to that but that's why i don't have a, a much of a stash because i can't stand unfinished work and and my four shelf of doom projects haunt me constantly i, I no it's not good well i think for me all the projects that i pick are really fucking unique and really cool and what keeps me from opening up more and more boxes and starting more and more projects is that, like, if I keep doing that, then I'm never going to finish that cool fucking project. And then some joker's going to come along and have done one of my projects. And then I'm like, well, fuck. I mean, I, yeah. I spent all this time and effort getting started and my lazy ass didn't finish it. So now somebody else gets the kudos for, oh, that's a real cool project. I'm like, well. But I was going to do that. And you can't even sell that shit because it's half finished. Yeah. <laughs> do you even know how much you sound like an Instagram girl right now? I mean, come on. If you're if, if you're if you're worried about your own self validation because of what somebody else is doing, you're doing it wrong. Come on. Well, hey, unless it's you know, I, I've got my own vision for it, 
and I really want to complete those projects. And you should do that because that's yours. So, yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. That's why there's only four boxes. You know, I've got one aircraft. Uh, maybe it's only, well, yeah, four. I've got two started tanks, uh, one started aircraft, and the project that I'm working on for Chris. You fucking amateur. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one, two, three, four, five, six started ships. Uh, one, two, three, four started aircraft. Oh, sorry, seven started ships. Uh, three started tanks. That's the ones I can see from here. That, that, that makes me that makes me itchy just to hear about it. Ah, <laughs> uh, they'll all get finished. Yeah. But then, you know, I have, I have. <laughs> do, do either of you guys? Do either of you guys have a shelf of Doom project that is seven years old? Uh, uh, probably. Probably. Yeah. I think my. Little, I probably threw it in the bin. I'll be honest. I think my Panzer One is probably approaching that age. I, I, when Shelf of Doom gets to a certain age, I think you just throw it out because yeah. it's only just making you feel yeah. guilty. You sure as you sure as shit ain't going to finish it. So. Well, I better finish it. I just bought new tracks for it. The reason I put that thing on the shelf of Doom is because I assembled my Frial model tracks and went to go put them around what I had built, and they were too short. And adding a link is going to make it way... Real. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do I need to get on an airplane and come over Real. here? How do we mute Chris? Is that possible? <laughs> Squadcast, let us do that. <laughs> Freel your mind, and your Chris will follow. <laughs> right. Wow. Fucking American. I, Whatever. I want, you know what I'm talking about. I want some of Captain Lasagna's weed today. <laughs> <laughs> so I just got some of those new T-Rex tracks for the Panzer I, uh, which are beautiful, but my God, those little pens are tiny. Um, but that's another reason why I need to clear the bench. I need, like, for... Assembling those little tracks with those little pens, I really need my bench to be clear. Because right now, if one of those pens goes flying, I'll I'll never find it. I'll I'll find it six years from now when I go to, you know, pick up a bottle cap that I use for super glue and oh, it's underneath it. Oh great. Or in it. Or in it. But it the super glue's all dry. <laughs> so Has anybody ever finished a bottle of super glue without it drying up on them? I don't think that anyone in the history of the universe has ever done that. No, I don't think yeah. so either. I've given up on those big bottles. There's probably some sort of ratio of the amount of air in the bottle to the amount of glue just solidifies it. Oh, well, yeah. That sounds better than just not using it enough. Anyway, I have some shit that I want to talk. Okay. Because I did have some mail that came to me privately, that I'm, and that's part of the shit that I'm going to talk Woohoo! Yeah, for your show, yeah. Yet. You know how you know how like if you, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. This is just this was actually one of my Patreon guys, um, and because uh, he, oh, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he 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 yeah. So you know how you spill like you spill coffee with cream in it in your car, and and it gets in the carpet, and you never quite get rid of that sour cream smell. Like no matter how much you wash it. You know how you know what I'm talking about that lingering odor yeah. that never goes away. Yeah, yeah well, that's yeah. kind of how this IPMS thing is because it just doesn't seem to it, uh. it just doesn't seem to want to go away. <laughs> we keep trying to quit, but they just won't let us out. Quit. They, they keep us pulling quit. us back yeah. in. So, but but first of all, <laughs> I, I look. I, you guys are gonna you guys are gonna hate me for this, but I have to do this because engineer and engineers 
the one thing that we hate is having to recant or uh, correct the numbers. And and I forgot on the last episode when we were kind of cleaning up the the last what we thought were the last bits of that whole debacle. To state this, I made a mistake when I was talking about the numbers on the awards. Um, so okay. so IPMS USA at Vegas had basically three thousand entries, and they and they hand out six hundred medals. That obviously is not one in 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 six, like I said. It's one in five. Okay, I can do basic math. Um, but the real mistake that I made was I, I was not prepared. I did not have my notes in front of me, and I'm I'm, I'm surprised that Robert hasn't pinged me for this because I misspoke. He told me that they gave out 350 awards at their last event, which is roughly 2,000, and that, for the record, everybody, is one in five point seven one four two eight five seven one, to be exact. Participation trophy. Participation trophies. Mm-hmm. So technically, <laughs> right? So it's really not that different. We did come to that conclusion, and that gives the lie to the whole idea that 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 they're giving out participation awards over there in in Europe. Uh, but technically, they're giving fewer at SMC than they are uh, at the other one. So anyway, I just had to clarify because yeah, I'm that's you know. Anyway, here's the deal with the mail. So, you know how they keep, there's some of these guys who just keep insisting that there is no anti-weathering bias uh, at at IPMS shows. So one of my Patreon guys was absent from the Patreon group this past Saturday because he was at one of said IPMS shows. And this is Robbie Knopfs. He's in the SMCG. Really, oh, yeah. he's a good modeler. He's got a good YouTube channel. He's a good, guy, he's a good dude, and 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 he and he's got a good YouTube channel. Uh, if if you haven't looked at that, it's called the Model Guy, and he did also did a really good episode on weathering his uh, Tamiya one thirty second Corsair. Uh, went you know went into a lot of depth about oils, um, and uh, and did a lot of really good close up shots, which is my number one thing with YouTube channels. And of course, he gave me a shout out, which made it obviously an awesome episode but here's the point he took that corsair which if you guys have seen it and we should maybe maybe put it out put some pictures of it on the in the in the uh, on the web, on the facebook page uh a really good really nice job with the corsair filthy roached out island based you know uh corsair and he literally got told by two judges that it was overweathered. Literally got told that. So, I'm just saying, you know, there's a reason this perception keeps popping up. Did they say anything about his basic construction? He didn't say that. But, you know, we've seen that model at very close range because uh, he's posted all the photos and he's posted the work along the way. And and he, does, he doesn't have any obvious basic... Okay, I'm gonna stop. I, fuck, we we could talk about this too. I have to stop using the term basic. He did not have what I would call any fundamental construction issues that were obvious in any of his close-up photos. Yeah. You know, he didn't have ghosts. Fundamental is the bad word. He didn't have. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm just tired of the basic thing because the guys that invented that were just doing it to be dickheads. It's gatekeeping. Well, you just have to have basic modeling skills. Whatever. Fuck you. Uh, the fundamental stuff. Not necessarily easy or basic, but it also it's the Tamiya 132nd Corsair. It's, 
you know. Oh right, well yeah, you know. I mean, I mean, misaligned wheels. You'd have to go some to misalign them. Right, they're, they're yeah. engineered to be perfect. Yeah, it's it's it's. So I think it's a classic case of of you know what we've what we've talked about, and uh, so yeah, I just had to put that out there. Assholism. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> I just, yeah, just had to put that out there. So, anyway, yeah, that's my shit talking segment. All right. The well, shit, I'm, I'm really glad that didn't spoken. go as far into uh, into IPMS as I thought it would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Um, yeah, thank God. We, oh, we've got oh, wait, 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 actually. Oh, no. Wait, I forgot. I forgot. Oh, for fuck's sake. Here he goes I again. I almost forgot. So, check this out. Okay. Check this out for fans of conspiracies. So you guys know I announced very publicly that I was going to join IPMS so that I could vote for John Bonani because he's running for the e-board, right? And I got stupid busy and I forgot to do it before the Nationals. So I was much relieved that they had some kind of a snafu that caused them to uh, extend the voting until October 1st. So I immediately on August the 23rd went over and joined, paid my 30 bucks, did the whole thing on my phone, created a password, all that stuff. Yeah, well, because again, because I'm a shithead, I arrived this weekend at October the 3rd and suddenly went, wait a minute, I forgot to go vote. Sorry, John. (laughs) But then I realized I never got any communication from the IPMS. I never got the promised packet in the mail, magazine, no email confirmation. And I was like, wait a minute, that's weird. And so I went over to the thing and I just clicked on the go vote deal just to see what was up. Your password is not recognized. So I try another password. Your email address is not recognized. So I keep trying. Nothing works. So I go to my bank account and sure enough, I do in fact have a charge on August the 24th to the IPMS USA for 30 bucks. So... (laughs) Your your bank account your was money. recognized. My bank account was recognized for sure. <laughs> so interesting, interesting. We'll see how that plays out. I'm sure it's just an oversight. Have you? Let, let's be fair. Have you contacted them and asked them about it? Not yet, because I just found out. I actually sent John a message uh, and asked him who, because I have no idea who I'm supposed to, yeah. you know, contact. Is there not a membership secretary or something? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that there is, and I just, you know, I, I probably just. <laughs> I know, I know. But, yeah. Right. All these things went wrong, and I've done nothing about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Okay, well, that was a great segment, Will. <laughs> yeah. So that See, was a Will didn't bother fucking checking it out. Segment. See, all, 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 we, all we have to do to create unintentional comedy is just let me run off at the mouth. And it, there it is. Uh. What's up, gangsters? If you're a model maker, you need stuff, right? Paint, tools, brushes, kits, books. It sometimes seems like the list is endless. My favorite place to buy stuff is Hobby World USA. Matt Bowl is the owner, and not only is he an all-around good guy, but he's a model maker, and he knows what kind of stuff we need. And for those of you who have already been Hobby World customers, you'll be happy to know that he's recently redesigned the site. He's made it a lot easier to search for all the stuff, find the stuff, and buy the stuff. So get yourself on over to hobbyworld-usa.com for all of your model-making stuff. 
All right. Well, let's go from comedy to more serious stuff, right? Let's get let's get into this discussion because uh, the interview that we did with Adam Wilder is at this point two weeks old for us, right? Mm, at least two. Yeah, two, three, maybe. It was it was an awesome interview, and it was it was different than what we would normally do. Uh, we didn't uh, pelt him with questions. Uh, we each picked one of his models, and we um, and we got him to talk about his thought process and his application of technique and and whatnot. And it was awesome, man! It was a great conversation. Um, but I feel like we sh- we should just say that uh, one of the reasons we did that was because he already did a great interview with the Plastic Posse podcast, and we didn't did, just right. want to duplicate yeah. what they'd yeah. already done. So people should go and should go to the the PPP. Uh, plastic posse guys and check out that interview as well yeah but after you listen to this one yeah and they did a great round table with with him and and rinaldi and and uncle night shift that's also very that's good. a great yeah yeah that's a great one yep. to listen to um so naturally you know his his forte what he's known for is his weathering uh even though his construction is fabulous his detail work is fabulous his basic but- modeling skills <laughs> and his fundamentals Ooh. very hot very uh, so we're going to chat a bit about weathering uh, which is going to be unusual for us because that's not like we don't talk about we never we never do right what, how, how have we not how have we got nine episodes in and never talked about weathering it's never even raised its little head <laughs> we've danced around it but we've never really looked at in you know properly at what it is and i think there's a lot of misconceptions about it there is yeah i think the nomenclature is it could stand to be uh, just kind of revamped a little bit you know you get people who say chipping and and they they it, it always makes me stop and kind of scratch my head because what they're talking about what they're referring to when they say chipping is usually chipping and dusting and wear like it's it's not they're not being they're not necessarily talking about the specific act of just chipping some making some paint chips like chipping becomes weathering at some point to people which is wait, odd to me because wait, a, it's not it's, it's a part of weathering right right i think the the problem is a lot of people think that anything after laying the base coat is weathering basically well and detail painting i do is weathering basically i do and it, I'm, I'm yeah much... it kind of is but but there's so much of it that it lumps like 10 different important things off the top of my head 10 a bunch of different categories together as one thing where really they bear looking at individually as different approaches different stages to what you're doing basically between yeah. painting the model and finishing the model i want to hear yeah. i want to hear so, i want to hear tracy's question yeah uh, my question is, <clears throat> for aircraft modelers in aircraft modeling, when you lay in a a panel line wash, is that weathering? That's weathering. That's, <laughs> that's all of it for them. <laughs> that's a, that's well, advanced weathering for aircraft modelers. I'm no, I'm not trying to make fun of that's anybody. I'm, I'm asking a legitimate question: Is that considered weathering, or is that part of the paint process? I think for, for aircraft models. I think some people consider that weathering. I personally don't. For me, panel lining is part of the of the coloring, not necessarily painting, but it's part of the coloring process, if you will. If that makes okay. Any sense. Well, I mean, that's yeah. that's just what I wanted to ask but, because, but I do, I do. 
I get I, – I, it kind of makes me itchy when people talk about – well, they say, well, okay, now I've done the painting and so I'm going to start the weathering. And that because, – because for me, the weathering starts during the painting. If I'm, you know, doing black basing or gray basing or top or, or post shading or whatever, that's all part of creating the tonal variety that makes that paint look like it's aged – and that's weathering to me. I, I mean, do you guys see that yeah. differently? Yeah, I've, I've had it where I've been doing. People call it modulation, but I'm not really sure it is. But you know, when you add like zenithal lighting or something like that, where you add a lighting effect mm-hmm. to the base coat before mm-hmm. you start on the weathering, and people say, "Oh, you're doing paint fading." No, I'm, I'm not. I'm doing a lighting thing. Mm-hmm. I'll do the fading and everything later on, and um. So to me, that's not weathering. That's just part of painting ready for the weathering. So it does get a bit, it's like the age old thing. What's the difference between a wash and a filter? And do you know what I mean? To a lot of people, they appear to be the same thing. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around. And maybe we're talking basic modeling. (laughs) Words here. Fundamental. But uh, maybe some definitions would be helpful. I don't know. I think it would be. Sure. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I don't consider, of course, I don't do anything like black basing or, or Zenithal light or anything like that when I'm mm. doing that. When I'm painting my camouflage colors or if I'm painting a base coat on a tank, you know, it's just probably a bit of lightening of the paint for, for scale effect if it's not. Oh, shit. Did he just say scale? <laughs> Did he just say scale effect? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, buddy. Uh, the, the froth. That? Sorry, the what froth was that? is coming. What out was of that my... thing flashing across the screen? <laughs> I, I think it was. I think it was Will's toys coming out of his pram. <laughs> it was my. It was the blood from my head exploding. But yeah, let's we, we let's just pretend we didn't hear that. Such like scandals up in here. <laughs> like sometimes I get to say things that just make you mad, just to make you mad. He's trolling me, folks, right here, live. It is. I'm gonna. You know what? I didn't want to say anything about it before, but I've commissioned a shirt for the uh, for the Red Bubble. It's just a big bottle of future, (laughs) (laughs) and it says Will Patterson can see the future. (laughs) That's all it is. Uh, No, I mean for for me, that's just painting. That's just part of the painting process. Weathering starts when when I break out oil paints. When I start doing. I don't even get washes aren't weathering. They're just washes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are part of weathering. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, because like on armor, I don't lay down just the same color wash everywhere. You know, like I, I've talked about this before. If I'm going over, you know, a NATO camouflage in the black, I probably won't go with a black wash or a dark wash i'll probably go with a lighter wash to accentuate some dust in the cracks and things like that because ultimately i'm going to build up the dust around a lot of that stuff anyway Mm -hmm. so yeah that's it's a part of the weathering process i suppose if i that that's probably where it begins well that's a good point about about washes being different colors and and i don't know that all aircraft modelers do this i I wish more of them would because it's just a personal style thing but but part of the reason that I consider it part of the coloring process is because I try to tune my washes to be compl- complementary is not the right word. Uh, typically a dark. Harmonious. Har- harmonious, I guess. But but typically I just try to make my washes a darker version of the base color. 
rather than uh, rather than like do you know a black wash on everything. I reserve black washes for what I call functional panel lines. So you know shit that moves, like ailerons, rudders, or things that get get removed. You know, like an access hatch or or whatever to sort of yet yeah, storytelling to tell the story that hey, this is a a thing that operates differently from the rest of this stuff. Uh, and uh, but if I have an area that's dirty, I may use a dirt colored wash in those panel lines, and now that panel lining becomes part of the weathering. Yeah, I was. I thought it was real cool that you use black for functional items and a darker version of the base color for your washes. That that's that makes perfect sense to me. That's a neat uh, neat thought process. It just it, it just it sense. just breaks the surface up more. It's a total pain in the ass, especially if you're doing a multicolored you know camouflage because you got dark brown in the tan parts and dark green in the RAF green parts. But I think that the work is worth the, the juice is worth the squeeze for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not that much of a pain in the ass. Like it's not, it's not like any of the other processes afterwards are going to be any easier than that. That's true. But yeah, I mean, and yeah, but you know, if aircraft panel lines can be such a pain in the pain in the ass because Sometimes they're really deep and sharp and the washes flow beautifully and they stay in there when you remove the excess. And then sometimes the panel lines are a little vague and none of that shit works and you're just fighting it the whole time and it can get extremely frustrating. That's, you know, that's more what I mean. Just use a Sharpie. Apologies to Sharpie Weatherers. Uh, there you go. <laughs> do, do Sharpie Weatherers listen to our show? Not any, not I anymore. Did, this is kind of. <laughs> this is kind of. Yeah, there goes our Sharpie. We lost those guys. We lost a Sharpie dollar. Um, uh, this is going to muddy the waters a bit. I, I've got a funny feeling you two might feel the same, but for me, between painting and weathering, it's kind of an artificial distinction anyway. Because I'm constantly flipping backwards and forwards between the two, and to me, it's just all paint, you know. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of what I'm doing with it, it's just all approaching the same goal, mm. and I don't really, I don't have this hard. I've painted it now. I'm going to weather it thing. It just it's almost just more like of that. a way of organizing your thoughts, you know. To yeah. yeah, I think so, and I think it's a in terms of explaining the process, if you can get your terminology to be as specific to what you're trying to accomplish, then it becomes clear what you're talking about. You know, if you're chipping is not the same as wear. Subtle Chip, yep. chipping subtle differences. Chip, yep. Yeah, now chipping is is a result of something hitting the surface and causing a paint chip. That is chipping. The, bing, 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 bing. The paint, Shrapnel the paint, rocks. Right. The paint physically breaks away from the surface. Right. To me, that is chipping. Now, wear is, can be softer. It can be an abrasion of the base color down to a, a, another, a secondary coat of the same color. It can be abrasion all the way down to the metal. But wear is definitely different to me. It's, it is like a grab handle that gets dirty over time from hands, hatchet areas, things like that. That's, that's soiling. So soiling is different from wear. But I mean, that's just in terms of like explaining the thought process of what, why you're doing what. I think. 
And you I, know, if, if let's you're... imagine that someone listening is wants to get into weathering. I know we're always like about being really deep and not really catering to beginners and stuff here. But let's imagine someone's not really into weathering. Okay. And they're kind of feeling their way a bit now. What is your process? I'm glad you I'm glad you interjected some reason here because we are kind of bouncing around and I see this a lot in some of the groups I circulate in where guys will be like I've never really done any weathering I don't really know where to start you know what's the recipe and so it's very that's the, I mean that's that's a really valid point I mean, are, are we talking about our own processes or what we would recommend? Yeah, why not? Else? Why don't we just go go around? Yeah, and talk let's about do it. Our yeah, own let's processes. do that because because I think we'll find that there each that there are some differences in each one. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose um, once the paint is laid down, my next yeah, I I think I start with uh, with washes. I generally start, and I'm going to talk about tanks because that's the majority of what I model. And but I start with out of the way areas so that I can get kind of dial in my color choices and and my thought process about the layering that I'm going to do. So, you know, if it's uh if they're deep if it's road wheels that have detail on both sides, then sometimes I'll start on the back side of the road wheels. Um definitely under the hull either sometimes the whole bottom, but I don't mess with that a lot, but around the uh the running gear and everything is a good place to to start tweaking your color choices and your uh your ideas about kind of the process you're going to go through to layer things up because you can't really fuck them up too bad. You know, it's it's going to be the dirtiest place on the vehicle. So, you know, why do you do washes? What's, what's the effect you're trying, you know, that you're going for? A lot of the times I'll do them to, to create um, depth because what I will do is I'll start with a stronger color. Let's, let's just um, the leopard that I did. Uh, was the setting was frozen grounds, probably first snowfall. So the ground itself is pretty hard, mostly kicked up dust, but there were, there were areas of some mud and the mud was kind of a reddish color, orange. So I hit those, I go around the running gear with a strong kind of orange tone. Um, and then I, if I remember correctly, I threw on some hairspray and then a dust layer that was a little translucent so that those stronger tones still showed through, but the color wasn't as strong as what I originally laid down. That color would not have worked on its own, but I knew that the next step was going to be to cover it with a transparent wash, so it would knock that color back a little bit, but still be... I wouldn't have to go back and necessarily put another wash around those items after I did the the dust coat to get that effect. But I sorry, what was the hairspray for? So the the dust coat what I used was Mission Models transparent dust, um, and then I, I basically sprayed the entire underside of the hull and some a little bit of the hull sides, hull front and hull back, and then started working that with hairspray to break it up. Or sorry, with with uh, brush and water to break it up and start creating some texture. You're, so you're just to be clear, you're actually doing the chip, the hairspray chipping process on your dust layer, as opposed to, my, to break up right, the dust to, my, to create that. As opposed to just do it, because a lot of people think that chip hairspray chipping is just for paint. I don't use hairspray chipping for paint. <laughs> 
Well, be- I, I well can... we know because that German paint never chipped, right? Obviously. No, you can create all that <laughs> stuff with oil. You can do it. You can do it. Like I know, I'm just being I'm just being tongue in cheek because that's always the argument. Well, well, stop derailing. I'm just saying, you know, because <laughs> there, there's always these guys who say, "Well, those tanks didn't, you know, armor doesn't chip." Yeah, so well, okay, that's not true. I I, I do use hairspray chipping for intentional effects. Like when I did the burnt out back end of the Hetzer, I certainly started with hairspray chipping there. And because that's it, it creates a fantastic roadmap for that sort of thing. But it's a really interesting so, point, though, that you don't use hairspray chipping for actual chipping. You're using it for this dust layer thing to break it up and make it more speckled, which is very cool. I use it. I mean, my ultimate usage of hairspray is to break up surfaces, um, not necessarily to reveal chipping underneath something i mean that that probably happens a little bit but it's not my it's not what i start off to the to do with hairspray chipping so anyway so in yeah. a more subtle way to like you said vary the texture yeah and I, I do it multiple times so the the uh the dust layer that i did on the leopard the original dust layer and then broke it up with using a brush and some water just to create some some cool texture that was the first dust layer and then after that, I went and mixed up a, I think, sort of a stronger, darker wash. And again, hit hit that around the running gear and things like that. And then started using, and at this point, I'm using oils. I've, I've already kind of broken down into, I, I go from painting to weathering with oils immediately. And if I use an airbrush... And anything besides oil from that point on, it's to do something like that with the airbrush where I'm uh, laying in a, a dust layer and then going back and breaking that up. The rest of my weathering is all done with oils. So at that point, I'm mixing up another color, probably something a little darker. I'm selectively hitting it around the running gear. But at the same time, every time I mix up a color, I am using, as, as my brush runs a little bit dry, before I reload the brush, I get a, a cocktail stick, a toothpick, and flick, 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 all over the place. Just, again, start creating texture. And at this point, I'm working on all of this stuff is creeping up the the underside of the hull, the front hull and rear hull. I've flipped the model over on its back, and I'm putting that dust where, and, and flicking all that stuff into the crevices where that stuff would really accumulate all that grime and accumulate and then getting and even sometimes i guess it would probably be the consistency of a filter which is almost let's say 90 percent thinner and just 10 percent color um and i'll hit the brush on a paper towel to, to get all the big moisture out of it and then just again flicking that over the surface of the vehicle and that's a great thing to do on the upper side of the vehicle, too, on big flat surfaces, because you're not really throwing down any visible color. But when it dries, you do get a little bit of a splotchy effect on the paint that it's a nice patina. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, all I'm doing from that point on is like really building up my my oil washes around things, whether it's dirt uh, dust layers kind of getting into 
crevices and crannies, and then flick, flick, flick using that um, the speckling technique. And I'll use it to build up good swaths of, of grime. Um, it's super controllable. Uh, but the whole time, you know, I'm I'm doing that, and then okay, well, I've now I need to go back and put a dust outline around this anti-skid on the hull because that that effect that I put in before is is start, I'm starting to lose that, so I'll go back and do that. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's really it. I mean, using straight oil paint is something else to do, like dust colors. Just getting in there with oil paint that's been put out on a piece of cardboard to leach the linseed oil out, so it's matte. And you get in there and you, with a brush, like a uh, little nubby bristle brush, and you push that color into the nooks and crannies and then kind of drag it out with a, a dry brush to, to blend it a little bit. And just all day long going back and forth between those techniques until I've built up what I want. Um, do you lock all that in with any clear coats? Nope. So do you do you end up with any clear coats? Nope. Cool. Very important point for a lot of guys listening. Oil paint. Do you use pigment at all? Uh, not much. Uh, I think in the last two builds, I haven't used it at all. Um, mm. I can, I, I have used a little bit at the end as sort of an overall dust layer uh, around wheels and lower hulls and things like that, just to, to maybe create a softer uh, top layer where it kind of diffuses some of the effects. It's a tool in the toolbox, but it's not one that I use very often. I use it for, um, I used when I did the snow and frost on the groundwork of that, I used uh, ashes gray and ashes white pigment to do that. But other than that, no, it's it's oil paint. Oh, the oil paint really, it doesn't take long to dry um, because, again, you put it out on that little piece of cardboard, it leaches the linseed oil out. And you can go back day after day, and really all you have to do is take your toothpick and just break the skin of the oil, and you can get back in there and reuse use those same colors. Um, the only thing I was going to ask you is what's the last thing you do, and how do you know when you're finished, basically? Because a lot of people say they don't know when they're finished. I'm right there with them. That's, I think it's probably the hardest thing about modeling is to yeah. figure out where the fuck you stop. I mean, I, I, I do. I know. It's it's when it's when you're moving the model around and you've got your paintbrush in your hand and you're like oh you're looking for like okay what needs attention what do I, what can I do what can I do and you realize that you could spend ages just putzing around on the thing but it it really wouldn't change where you are yeah. um, and then once you hit that point I feel like okay then I think I'm done. And then you take a just a good hard look at, you know, whatever, whatever else you might need to do, and then uh, if there's nothing else, just wrap it up. the The Panzer one that I'm uh, that I have on the bench that I want to finish, that I just got those really sweet T Rex tracks for. I probably will do some hairspray chipping on that because it's. Uh, it, obviously, it was originally in, you know, primer gray or red red primer, then panzer gray, and then this one has got a three tone camo sprayed over it. So it'll give me a lot of opportunities to break down into the gray, and then in some places break all the way through to the red primer, um, which is one of the reasons why I picked that subject. So 
I probably will do some hairspray chipping there. I think this is good, though, because we're picking out some some specific key points, and, and I think that's good. That's good. Good material. Because there's a lot of guys that just think it's always yeah, I mean, just this particular one way, and it's totally not. No, but I think if you're going to give someone advice about how to start weathering, you know, you, that's different than what we're talking about right now because the process that I go through is there's so much intuition that goes along with it, and there's so much experience that guides that intuition. If I were going to tell somebody, if I were going to give somebody advice on how to start weathering, I would say, if you're going to try hairspray chipping, try it on the edges of things, logical places where people would climb up and down or under the hole where where wear would occur. And as soon as you see chips appear, move to the next section. And then do it there, and as soon as you see chips appear, move to the next section. You can always go back and chip a little more, but it's really difficult to go back and fix chipping where you've yeah. gone too far. And we all we've all gone too far. My I think my first experience in chipping, you know, I, I thought this is so fucking cool and oh my god, this is great, and all over the place, and then I stepped back and looked at it, and I forget who it was. But it was somebody with a little more experience under their belt, and I showed it to them, and they were like, was this thing under a, a rock slide? Like, what, what happened? And I looked at it, and he I was said like, oh, my. He said before, it was Mike Rinaldi, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, I think Rinaldi is who it was. He was like, was this thing under a rock slide? And I was like, ugh. You look at I it, always like, think when you see those models, and they've got chipping on every available edge all over the place, they look like someone took a die-cast toy and put it in a tumble dryer and just left it on spin for an hour. There's that, and then the other danger that, that, that I see a yeah, lot is you're using a tool to start the chipping, and you see these repetitive distributions start where it's obvious that guys are pecking here and then moving out because your brain wants to move in regular increments. And you can see it. There's a patch here and a patch here and a patch here, and they're all evenly spaced, and they just don't right. They just don't really make sense in terms of the actual wear mechanism. Right, which is why I say as soon as you as soon as you see the chips up here, move to a different area. Like like if you're chipping on the left hole side and chips start appearing, move to the hole front. Right, like way Chip far there. away. Not just a, start... a quarter of an inch away, yeah. but to a completely yeah. different part of the model. Absolutely, no. yeah. To a different section of the model. And then and then once you've come back to that first area where you started chipping, just take a look at it and and build it up little by little and try to think logically about where things go. But I, I think the same is, is true with any other, like if you're doing oil paint rendering, if you're doing speckling, if you're doing pigments, if you're doing washes, just do a little at a time on each model. And then look at it and then push yourself a little bit further with the next one and the next one. I know there are people out there that want to that want to see those immediate results, but you're going to yield a lot more uh, intuition and experience by doing it a little bit at a time. And then you'll have models that whenever you look back at them in a year's time, you're not rolling your eyes and saying, well, shit, that's I really I really went too far on that one. It's nice to have models where you can look back on and be like, well, okay, yeah, this is not terrible. I'm certainly better than I am 
than I was then, but you still got models that are not embarrassing, you know? That, I've that's... got two pieces of advice for beginners. The first one is, well, for, and, you know, uh, anyone else, I guess. The first one is each model doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be your best model. It's just practice for the next one, which might be your best model. So don't worry about ruining it. And the other thing is, uh, don't try and do everything at once. If you're new to weathering, pick a technique and make that model about that technique and do that technique as well as you can and really get into that and concentrate on that. Yeah, that's great advice. And And it doesn't matter if you don't do all the techniques you want on that model. Yeah, it doesn't. You're right. Like if you if you want to just start off with washes and and creating really controlled washes, then doing that over the scope of two or three models that's a skill set that you that you don't have to work on once you have it. And if you're trying to work on five skill sets on each model, then each model is going to be you're going to be struggling with those five skill sets on each model. Better to have one under your belt and then move on to the next technique and, and master that. It's like Kung Fu, bro. <laughs> if you're concentrating on one, you get to really enjoy it. More than, yeah. you know, you get to really enjoy learning it rather than thinking, what am I doing next? What am I doing next? Yeah. Will, what's your process? I, I'm a little different than Tracy, I, in in a not just in, in the specifics, but I just over time I have, I mean, as much as I say, I hate recipes cause I do, I, 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 I feel like it's much more important to understand the, 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 the mechanics and the materials and have a goal in mind than it is to have a recipe. But having said that, because I know that's helpful for a lot of guys who are, who are trying to figure out how to start and where to go. Um, let me put it in terms kind of of a recipe. The first thing, hundred percent, the first thing is to have a goal. Um, you know, have a, have a vision. I, it's, for me, that's that's really important. And I and I know you know there's been a, we discussed a lot of that last time. Uh, you know, in regards to that whole conversation about storytelling, I I I pretty much know before I start laying down colors what I want the thing to look like at the end, and that's down to the exhaust stains, the dirt on the belly you know, whatever it is, I have an idea of the overall condition of the, of the thing to the point where I will find things in reference photos, like a fuel stain in particular, or some little bit of, of weathering that I will just get completely captivated by. And I'm almost building the entire fucking project just to get to the point where I get to do that one stain. I mean that's 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 how that's how silly it gets, you know. Because these guys were like, "Do you really think about every single stain and chip?" And we're, we're like, "Yeah, it's way worse than that for me." Um, you know, like like uh, on my P40, there was a you know the gas cap is right there uh, aft and and underneath the the cockpit, and spilled fuel runs down the side of the fuselage at an angle, and it runs through the dirt and creates this sort of darker rim around the stain i thought about that stain for months and the day that i finally got to do it and and the fact that it came out pretty good was like it's like a that that was one of those things in that whole project that yes tracy has his hand up i do have my hand up so um this goes to 
sort of problem-solving things in your head. When you were, you, you had that stain in mind and you were looking at it for weeks and weeks, by the time you went to apply paint to model, did you already have a process in mind of how you would accomplish mm-hmm. that? Had you already painted mm-hmm. Had you already painted it in your head enough that whenever you went to the model, you had a real clear vision of what you were sitting down to do? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah, that's super important. I think so too. It's visualization. It's it's and this is something that you're only going to develop with time, right? Where where you understand the materials, you understand the way the materials behave, and you can visualize way ahead of time how you're going to solve those problems. And and by and I think when you say problems, you mean like specific instances. How am I going to tell this story? How am I going to create this particular look or whatever? Uh, and, and I think that it all that it all starts that it all starts there for me. And, and I kind of I kind of have to uh, kind of have to to uh, hassle one of our fellow podcasters a little bit. If you, you guys uh, have noticed that the uh, plastic posse guys. Um, I'm going to just straight up say they copied us because they got an English guy on now. (laughs) (laughs) Ivan, they decided to add a touch of class to their neighborhood and they got Ivan Jensen Taylor on over there. And he's a, and he's a good dude. And, and, and he's, he's got a lot of good things to say, but one thing they were talking about on their last episode about storytelling, Ivan was, was complaining about his earth effects He's like, man, every I cannot do earth effects. Every time I try, it just not does does not end up looking natural. And then a little later on, they were talking about using, you know, how their process. And he says, Yeah, I just do, you know, what seems logical. And the logical word, and Tracy used this word a minute ago too, is what I is what I glom onto. Because then he's they were talking about whether or not they use reference photos. And Ivan said, I, you know, I don't really use, I don't build to a photo. And I was like, aha, yeah, Ivan, maybe that's why your earth effects are not making you happy. Maybe if yeah, you... Yeah, but then div- not building to a photo isn't the same as not looking at reference photos. That's true. Perhaps. Yeah, that, that's true. Because I've built to a photo where you copy the photo. That's not the same thing as ignoring all reference right. photos. Yeah, that's, that's, but I think that's what he's, uh, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about this, but... I I and I was just laughing because I was thinking, uh, yeah, okay. So by the t- when I started the P40 project, I had no P40 photos in my in my reference library. When I finished the P40 project, I had 657. <laughs> and 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 the, the you know the the look of the 40 was the result of me just studying those photos over and over and over again. Like I would think, all right. I'm going to start the exhaust stain tomorrow. So I'm going to look at a bunch of exhaust. I'm going to go into my photo library and I'm going to study nothing but exhaust stains today. It, it, it gets that silly for me, but that's for me because I'm basically un, just talentless. That's what I have to do. <laughs> You're a hack. <laughs> that's, that's what I have to do to stand a chance of, of creating the look that I want. So, Again, lot, that's a lot to say, but I really think that's the first and most important step in the recipe for me, from my view. Um, and then after that, you know, look, I'm going to start during the paint because typically I want my paint to have that patina that, that Tracy was talking about. So I'm going to do things to the paint to create tonal variety that, that gets me going down that road. Um, and, and then once I've got the paint, the colors down, and, and if I'm going to do chipping, 
that's all incorporated with hairspray because yeah, I love me some hairspray chipping. And so that's going to be the first thing that I do to the paint after the colors are laid down. Um, sometimes I'll do some oil work first, though, because there may be areas where there's going to be a chipped area that also has discoloration. And I learned a long time ago that if you try to do the discoloration after you do the chipping, it's, it's just not good. Because then you got oils bleeding over onto what should be bare metal, and it just it just looks bad. So I try to get the paint looking everything the way that I want it to before I start knocking the paint off. And, and 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 to Tracy's point about abrasion versus chipping, my chipping process has become really specific. I sand first. I I because typically, like in a high traffic area, paint's going to get abraded first. Because, you know, dudes are walking on it with dirty feet or whatever. So I use the sandpaper first. And that gets me uh, uh, the abraded look. But it also opens that color coat to the chipping process. And it makes it easier. Which when you're all about that lacquer life like me, you need that. Because yeah. lacquers, can, lacquers can be hard to break through. So so And then sometimes I'll even do the chipping process with a piece of wet sanding sponge. Anyway, so then washes um and, and this is after i get all my markings down uh then i do my washes um and then i i don't like to use a lot of clear coats i want as few of them as possible but i also because again talentless and clumsy i need safety nets so i will use clear coats as my sort of uh like if you're in photoshop and you you know combine all your layers so that nothing you did before can get fucked up I use clear coats for that, but it's typically always a flat clear. So like I know that after my washes, I'm going to do either acrylic ink or oil work. And I don't want any of those mistakes because they're going to happen to fuck with my washes. So I'll lock that shit in. And also because like with MRP, it's got a sort of a naturally semi-gloss finish and oils just don't stick to it you're just chasing your tail you need a like i prefer to do my opr on a totally matte surface and and so i get that as well as protection and then i do the oil uh, or the ink and then i i typically am going to lock that in because like like on the 40 i did all my ink work and then i locked it in in just the areas where that existed because i knew that mineral spirits was going to mess with with acrylic ink. And so I had a protection layer and then I did my oil work. And then when I'm done, I do, I I confess I'm a paranoid fuck and I know I'm going to be, you know, finger fucking the thing through final assembly. And I do not want to be retouching my paint where I've rubbed it up, you know? So I do, I I lock it all in with, with the GX 113 because that stuff is bulletproof. So you know, that's my basic aircraft weathering sort of recipe for whatever that's worth. <laughs> these, two, these, two, these two guys are just kind of nodding and going, mm, okay, yeah, that all sounds crazy. That's today's show. Welcome to <laughs> No, I mean, what it about may- you? What a- yeah, I was waiting okay. on Chris to pipe in with his. And, and I was what waiting I do. to be asked because I'm English. <laughs> 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 we don't just go, so this is mine. <laughs> Please ask me. 
Okay, well, so Chris, Chris, why don't you tell us now about your weathering process? I, I always think I don't have a weathering process, but I suppose I do. And if you have one, you can fuck with it. So, you know, when I say that I go back and forth between different things, you can only do that if you've already got a process that you follow, even if you break, you know, if you're going to break your rules, you need to have rules first is what I'm trying to say. So I lay down, uh, I always start with a dark, this isn't the weather in, but I always start with a dark um, primer coat, basically. Although I don't actually prime. All I'm doing is pre-coloring, if you see what I mean. I start with a dark paint coat. Heathen. Because, yeah, but I'm using paint <laughs> with lacquer thinner, so it bites. You know, as long as it bites, True. you're fine. If you're using a water-based acrylic or something, or even Tamiya with their own uh, X20A, then it's not going to bite. So you do need a primer then, but because I use Mr. Color Thinner and Mr. Lacquer Thinner, <coughs> it's fine. Be right. Uh, <laughs> we could do a whole. Well, we could and should sometime do a whole episode about to prime or not to prime. Yeah, if we want to send people to sleep, fucking yeah. hell. <laughs> and then I uh, then I put my other colors over the top, similar to the black basing thing and, and what have you. And then I gradually lighten it up. So I, the end of paint for me is adding the lighting effects where um it's not perhaps as exaggerated as i used to but really it's to start putting shadows in the dark areas but i what i aim for is something that by the time i've weathered later on you can't see where i've done it if you see what i mean where you you can see it but you can't see how or where i've done it so it's not like a really high contrast artificial effect it's quite a low contrast uh effect can i interject one of my favorite sayings right now so I used to have a photography mentor, and he always said, "If the effect is the first thing you notice, you're doing it wrong." And, yeah, and yeah, he's taught, and, and I think you're saying the same thing. If it looks like well, I think of it like cookery. If, it, if you can really taste an ingredient, you haven't balanced the dish right. It should all go. work harmoniously together, so nothing there should leap go. out at you. you um, and especially, I do it with ships because, especially one seven hundred ships, because when you've got this little hole, it's really hard to stop it to sort of all the detail and, and all the shape of it and everything disappearing. So a bit of a lighting effect on it just brings out the form a little bit. So um, I do all that and then I paint all the wood and all that sort of stuff. And then I do a pin wash, which is really just like ground zero base thing to start because I want to see a, where all the detail is for when I'm working on it and I want to pick it out or knock it back or whatever. And also that's like, it's been painted in the factory and it's got a shadow on it now, if you see what I mean. The lighting effect mm-hmm. to me is like an ambient light. That's not weathering at all. So it's like it was when it was built. So now I guess the weathering starts, even though I've done several things already now, which some people would call weathering. And then um, what well, depends on the subject. <laughs> Probably what I'll do next is, is chipping, because I think if you leave chipping till last, you could do actually no some chipping I will do last, but if you leave the if you put the chipping on top of the dirt, it looks like it was dirty and then it got chipped. Whereas really what it should be is chipped and then like two months ago someone shot it and that chip came off. But then since then it's been through bushes and if it's a tank and it's been on the ground and everything and dust has gone over the chip. So when we were talking about storytelling and weathering, this is the story, you know, that we're, that we're talking about. This is why every chip matters and why every stain matters because it's when it it's a snapshot in time of the vehicle, but the vehicle is telling you about its past by what's on it. So, um, and then like, if I'm going to chip something or bend a fender, 
or something like that, then the story to me is that the drivers are a clumsy fucker. So there's going to be <laughs> all over it because most people, they'll either not prang it or they'll prang it constantly is, is my, my story. <laughs> in my head. So that decides sort of how much chipping, but also, you know, do I want, what kind of vehicle do I want it to be? Do I want it to be something that's seen a lot of action, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, I don't always do the same thing. Sometimes I'll do something heavily battered and sometimes I'll do something like the, the BF 109, which is, which hasn't got that much scratches and stains and things on it because it's not supposed to be that old, but I like doing both. Sometimes I like, you know, a real filthy, dirty bird. Yeah. And sometimes I like a nice factory fresh. Well, I'll never do factory fresh because there's no such fucking thing. Sorry if you're a factory fresh fan, but let's <laughs> do the factory <laughs> bullshit. And well, then, you, uh, you don't think factories get dusty? Like, yeah, exactly. It's a factory <laughs> assembling things. Dust is flying everywhere. Actually, British tanks were quite often built in World War II. God, I'm going to get anal now. Were quite often built in locomotive factories because that's the only that's the biggest heavy industry Britain had. So unlike in America, where it was built in automotive plants, in Britain they were built in railway plants. Those things are full of all kinds of oil and coal dust because they're in like you know they're usually next to rail yards and all this stuff it's like they're gonna be the last places on earth they're gonna be clean yeah. they're the dirtiest and, fucking places in the country and, yeah heavy steel fabrication is filthy yeah for yeah, sure this, really, like, really constant filthy. like slag and things coming from from welding mm-hmm. and fusing things together you know it's like these are not clean places i'm sure they wiped them down and rubbed them down before they primed them but still they're not that clean so anyway then I do stains. Yeah. Even when you look at some of those really, really beautiful high resolution time life photos from, from World yeah. War II in the North American Aviation Factory, which was probably the most advanced factory on the planet in 1944, dirt, dust, yeah. stains. So, sorry, going back to where I was. So I've done the pin wash. <laughs> now I do uh, something, Tracy, that I look at areas and think, where is there not quite enough? contract where do i want to push an edge to bring the shape forward or do something with it so then i'll add a little bit of oil oh i used to do oil since i uh, since i read uh kirill's book uh on figure painting for ak i do it with acrylic now and i do it with a fine brush and i add tiny glazes of acrylic one after another and build up the light just just like you would figure painting a face like you were blending the the um the tones on a face but on camouflage and then once I'm happy with sort of the way the light works, then I'll do the patina that, that Tracy talked about. Basically the same thing, except I get a big soft brush. I dip it in oil, like wash, very, very thin, 99% thinner pretty much. And then like soak most of it off on a tissue and then blast it with the airbrush to get a fine spatter all over it. But I'm not looking for a dirt spatter. Like Tracy said, I'm looking to break the color up and to add patina to the model. Just to like you did on the wing of the P40, uh, yeah. will to get that effect, just to break up the color, particularly because I like doing single color subjects, like Adam will talk about later in the interview. Although, also on tritone camo, it really helps because you could do a lot with lighting on single tone, it's much harder on like camo subjects. So, that it's another way of breaking that up. And also, when you've got a really stark camo scheme, blending it together a little bit and softening it so it isn't too in your face. I know a lot of people like it, particularly on German tritone cano, to be really well delineated. But I like it to blend together quite a lot, so that you're seeing it through a filter of muck and grime, and or even just sort of shade and stain and everything else. Then once I've done that, I do the dust, and that this goes back to panel lines because 
like I think you were saying earlier, Will, sometimes I'll put a dark panel line or somewhere where the area is reasonably clean. But if it's a very dusty vehicle, I'll use a dust wash in the yep. panel lines instead. Mm-hmm. And then build that up a bit, like you were saying, Tracy, with oils. But I do it with, uh, I like the, it sounds like an AK advert. I like the AK oh. dust effects. It's like an enamel. It's almost it's almost like uh, pigments in suspension, but it's much finer. And that's really nice for building up really good dust effects because it, unlike uh, using an enamel wash or using pigments, it blends out almost automatically if you see what I mean, you just add a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time. You don't get a hard edge to it where you've applied it. It blends out quite nicely. And when it's done, you can get a soft, dry brush with nothing on it, rub it, and it will just blend out a little bit more as well, which, you know, stops it being quite so painted on, if you see what I mean. And then after that, I might go back and do more stains or I might have more pin washes or what have you. But I'm not logical with dust. People are always like, oh, I've got to get the right color for Kursk and stuff. The color of dust I choose is always chosen to contrast with the paint on the model because there's nothing worse than like a dark green tank with dark brown mud on it because you just can't see it. And it ruins all the definition on the tank. You can't. So I go for lighter dust for darker models and darker mud for lighter models because, you know, you know what it's like. If you go out and look at the ground where you are, it's one color, but go five miles up the road, it's another color. So is there such a thing as Kursk dust? I bet there's lots of different colors of dust in Kursk. You know, and it's all mud in Vietnam red. I bet it isn't. No. No, and that red mud from Vietnam is, I think, hard to work with. Yeah, like I, it's hard to look good. Yeah, it it can really overpower the model. It's just such a strong color. I think it's better to creep up on that color than to, to start off with it. But, I mean, that's another... It's one of those colors as well that people apply as a single color. And that's another... Th- I know you know this. You know, you both guys are about this but we haven't actually said it yet never apply one color of dust to yep. the model yeah, no. yeah. always yeah. vary it i see a lot of of sort of uh and i don't mean this in a derogatory way but i see a lot of of, of beginner weathering efforts that basically look like a single color of paint with a single color of dust or dirt or whatever on top of it and that's you know and it's like okay you know your your mechanics are pretty good but you've got essentially two layers and when you look at the work of somebody like Adam, he's got like two dozen layers. Yeah, I'll the, tell you who's the master of earth effects is Lester Plaskett. Mm, yeah, he and is, hopefully yeah, we'll have good, him on sometime. Really but yeah, people really, really should go and look at his work. But yeah, he he varies it, and like you do, Tracy, with the with the hairspray, he breaks up the texture of it really well as well. Yeah, yeah, he does a lot of really great. He does all that sh- great work with acrylics. Yeah. To your point about dust color, you know, like look at Rinaldi's work. He, he pretty much always uses the same two or three tones of dust. Mm. And, and it, it looks good with the colors of the armor that he builds. I mean, light, tan, yeah. dust just works with green. Well, I also, does, yeah. like if you're working with oils and you've got uh, three colors, you know, if you've got like a, a dust color, um, something in the ochres you should yeah then maybe an ochre family and then mm. like a, a raw umber then yeah. or a raw sienna even you can make a lot of variation with those uh, yeah, there's huge variety in that but what i was going to say about you know will mentioned how you can sometimes you'll see people who appear to have only used one layer of dust on their model i think if we're trying to give any kind of tips towards uh people who are 
I'm not going to call them beginners because they're probably accomplished modelers who are maybe even taking a step into weathering. Um, yeah. I think it's the rule of thumb for for using earth tones is to have three: have a light, mm-hmm. a medium, and a dark. I mean that that's just a this rule. This talks of thumb. about that tonal range we talked about <coughs> before. You know, yeah. you need to have that light, that shade, and that mid range. Yes, yeah. and the light is more than likely going to be the the one that covers the most area. The mid range mm-hmm. is going to be it's going to start accumulating around your road wheel assemblies and under the nooks and crannies of your fenders. And then your darkest dark is going to be reserved for like the real deep spots and, and the nice accents that you want to have. And if you just stick to that and, and use that as your sort of roadmap, it's, it's a real quick way to see what we're talking about. And I think a quick way to see some good results. I should say, talking of aircraft, um, I forgot that lesson, and I think it was Shane Doak. I, I really hope it was. Otherwise, uh, sorry if it wasn't. And you're listening to this, but I, when I did the dust on the bottom of the BF 109, I did it in more or less one color, and they were like, "What's what's that stain about?" And uh, so I thought, "Well, if I had another color, well, that and instantly it worked. It popped it because there yeah. was two well, colors on there plus shade and everything else." So is he the one who said that it looked like a? Uh, the paint was scrubbed out and it was like an RLMO2 underneath it. That was a good point. And when he made that comment, I went back and looked and I thought, well, that's a good effect if that's what Chris is going for. Eh, it wasn't. Do you know what, though? I did that classic <laughs> thing. I thought, oh, he's just not looking at it. And then I thought, oh, he is. You're just being a tit. Yeah. So I went back and added a bit of slightly more reddy brown to the dust. Yeah. And he was bang on. He was absolutely right. It instantly improved it. Yeah. I got I to gotta throw that guy some mad props because, you know, Shane came into, came into my radar like a year ago, maybe. And, mm. dude, I, you, know, you rarely see somebody who comes so far so fast. But if you look at his... Uh, I think it's uh, what SU thirty four or SU twenty seven, some Russian jet he's building right now. This shit looks really dope. He's just, it just it's fun to watch people's work progress like that. Yeah. It's just really good stuff. But just to, you know, you guys are talking about the three tones. A question that comes up a lot is, I'm going to buy oils or I'm going to buy acrylic inks. Yeah. What colors do I need? And my answer is always black, white. Uh, raw umber, burnt umber, and uh, raw sienna. What do you guys think? I mean, if you got those five, you can do anything. Yeah, it's probably different for aircraft than it is for armor. Like, I never like. I don't even use Payne's gray, much less black. I don't. I, I'm not a Payne's gray fan. Too blue. Yeah. Well, whatever. I mean, I don't like. I don't. I use. I use oil paints for earth effects and for paint that's been worn away and rust. Like the one of my favorite things is, um, and a good place to look for it is on rusty hinges on the area of the hinges that actually move where the hinge pin goes in. You'll see what I call rust leaching, where you'll have a dark mm-hmm. area in there, but then you'll have the orange sort of creeping out into the paint. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I mean, I, I use oil paints for earth effects and for things like that. You I got burnt sienna for that, right? Uh, burnt no, burnt sienna is so red. It's so it's such a specific red color. I almost never reach for it. Um, okay. I think I can do a lot with. I use a a color that's essentially a very very light dust 
Uh, I think it's called, uh, I can, I'll post some pictures of the paints that I use, but uh, it's like a, a warm, light gray, but it, it's essentially a dust color. And then I use one that is um, a little more like an ochre, but it's knocked back a little bit. It's not quite so yellow. It's it's more, it's got a little bit more brown to it, so it's it's not so punchy but it's still in that yellow ochre family. And then I'll use like a, a raw umber um, and occasionally a light gray. Occasionally, if I'm trying to do, what was I using that for? Like concrete dust, uh, like city dust. I think uh, a real, real light gray, almost a colorless light gray is good for that. Whereas you've got a dust color, which is better for earth dust. So uh, half a dozen colors, unless if I'm doing like a NATO three-tone, then I might put out a green and maybe then I'll put out that um, that burnt sienna to play around with the, the red-brown and the, the camouflage color. Uh, but I can make everything I need from, from those. And it, it's a small investment. You know, I mean, you're talking about a half a dozen colors. Uh, if you get a decent quality you know, Windsor Newton, then you might be spending, what, 60 bucks? And those things will last you for the rest of your life. Long time, for sure. I was going to say, I got the earth tones we're talking about, black, white, and then I got a blue, a red, a cadmium yellow, you know, like all the basics. Your your primary colors. A little bit of primary color to something if I want to tune it. And a sap green, because it's really green. Yeah. When you want something that's really green, it's a great green. And that's it. I've had the same ones since I first tried oils on models. Yeah. Sap green yeah. is my go-to yeah, green I, as well. I doubt. In fact, I lost my black and bought another tube, and I know for a fact I'll never use both. No, you won't. I've probably never used one. Well, and, and you guys, you guys are way more knowledgeable about this, but like pay attention to – which one you buy because like ivory black takes way longer to dry than Mars black, for example. I'm going to, there's like, I'm going to stop you right there and say, Chris didn't need to buy black in the first place because he has his three primary colors, red, blue, and yellow and mixed within equal parts. Those make black. Chris is also lazy. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine everybody else is efficient like Chris and would rather buy a tube of paint. I paint a lot of dark gray ships, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the other thing I would say, though, is buy quality ones. You might say, well, oh, that tube's like, you know, five quid, and that tube's 15 quid. Why should I get the 15 quid one? Well, A, because you'll never have to buy another one, and B, because when you thin them for washes, you'll see why. Because yeah, if you absolutely. buy the cheap ones, you'll get claggy pigments. You'll yeah, get yep, little bits. Break up. Yeah, you won't even notice it at first. Yeah. You'll do your panel line. And then when it dries, it will be black dots instead of or, or dark brown dots. Instead of a line, it will be dots all the way along where, the, the yeah, it's retracted. The thinners evaporated and you're left with clumps. Yeah. So buy the good Pig, ones. Pigment's the most expensive part of oil paint. And yeah. look, for dudes that want to learn, just learn some basic stuff about oil paint, go to the Windsor Newton website. They've got a series of videos over there that will, that will, that will blow up your brain about that stuff. Or just or save your time and just don't buy the don't buy the student grade, buy the professional yeah. grade and, and buy you know two or three tubes and then get another two or three tubes in a few months. I mean it's like I said. Or it's like they say, buy cheap, buy twice. Yeah, 
And under and understand that you may be whining about paying fifteen bucks for a tube of oil paint. There are there are oil, certain pigments that you'll pay two hundred bucks for a tube of paint. Yeah. So, you know, don't 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 whine too much. But it, here's we, a fun little we, fact. You know what flesh color used to be made out of? Flesh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mummified hands. Nice. Cool. I'm not nice. kidding. The pigment for flesh color in the 19th century was mummified hands. There was a wow. trade going from Egypt in hands from, because uh, it wasn't just like, you know, pharaohs. It was lots of people were mummified there and, you know, dig one up, chop it up, sell it for paint. What's the. Well, uh, on that fun note. Yeah. <laughs> so so look we've we've dumped a ton of knowledges here i i, I and then i'm looking at the t- at the clock but i hope that what people pick up on as they're listening to this is that aside from all these specific details that each of the three of us has a slightly different uh, approach if you will like like what i see is tracy we're all trying to get to the same place we're all looking for effects that are logical that tell a story but Tracy is really color driven, really color composition focused, and, and and focusing on on tones. And Chris also, but maybe he's emphasizing also some of the like chronological effects and the layers. And then I'm way over on the other end where I proceed in what I think is a very like chronological like okay the paint's gonna fade then it's gonna get some dirt then it's gonna get some oil so and if you want to throw in even a fourth way to look at it like rinaldi something that a lot of people don't pick up on from his books he will take a section of a tank and he'll do all of it just in that one section yeah because he wants to see Right. He wants to see what the finished product is going to look like before he moves on. Yeah. So, you know, just just figure out, you know, for guys that are sort of struggling or not sure where to go, I think it's helpful to sort of figure out what approach works for you, like the way you think, you know, and, and because that's going to be what's most comfortable for you and you're going to get the best results. Yeah. And I think if you want to look at the commonality that we all have, um, it's... We're looking for a lot of patina in the finish. Um, we're looking to, you know, break up big areas and build up grime. But overall, we just want a patina, but a harmonious one that if you look at it from a distance, you won't see. And it, But mm. the closer you get and the harder you look, the more your eye is rewarded for taking the time to look really closely at those things. Um, and... They're all built of layers and layers and layers and layers. That's the other thing that we all have in common is we're building up layer after layer after layer on these surfaces, and it does take time. But I think for the three of us and certainly for a large portion of other people out there, that's really a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to slowly bring that thing kind of in the focus and start to see what you have envisioned in your mind coming to life on the surface of your model that's it it takes time and it takes effort and but man you can you can put on the sopranos and just dick around and do this stuff and then come back the next day and put on another episode and dick around some more and you're just building it up layer by layer and it's bada bing oh nicely done (laughs) there are two final pieces of advice I'd offer someone looking at getting into weathering. 
which is why models go wrong why when you finish them you don't like them it's because you probably because you didn't have a clear enough idea of what you wanted to do when you started so you're just kind of blundering through and doing stuff to see what works so even if it's just that one technique have a clear idea of what your goal is and what you want to achieve and what you want it to look like and the other one is when it's not going right i do this a lot so i've had to rein myself in but when it's not going right don't keep going stop put it aside leave it have a look at it tomorrow because whatever it was that wasn't going right and that you were just going to try something to see if that improved it tomorrow you'll know what it is you need to do to improve it yeah. and you won't do something to your model and, that you regret yes and don't hesitate don't hesitate to unfuck that shit yep if it's yeah. not good erase it erase it yeah because oils acrylic inks they give you the safety net they give you the out button to be able to just redo it and you're probably you're, there's always a nuclear option to strip the paint and start again you don't even have to strip the paint half the time just break out the airbrush and paint over what you've done you could you know there's lots of ways you could fix it and if you still can't fix it just strip the paint and start again yeah it's only a little plastic toy it doesn't matter and everything is fixable everything is fixable yeah. if you want to put the effort yeah, totally. into it the other thing i want to point out is if you're just starting off and you want to try something and it, it speaks to what Chris said, to have an idea of what you want the finished product to look like in your head. That's a big ask for a lot of people who don't have the built-up knowledge and experience and, and uh, intuition. It's a big ask to say, keep an eye on the prize and, and know what you want your finished model to look like. I'll give you an even easier way for you to practice your weathering, get better at it and better at it. Copy something you like. Take yeah. If you see something in a magazine, then you're most likely going to have photos of every side of that model in its finished state, if not within a couple of steps. If you really like the way that model came out and you want your model to look like that, copy that one in the magazine. And you don't have to keep your eye on the prize for what it is because it's in print in front of you. It's right there. That's your goal. And that's going to teach you, it's going to put you in the mindset of the person who built that tank, that airplane, whatever you're copying. And if you are diligent and really do try to copy what you're seeing there, it it begins to give you a way into their process. And it gives you a way to start your mastery of the tools and the techniques. I What are the models we're going to talk about in the interview? Uh, the panther f i've seen at least three or four versions of that where people have copied it yeah and i'll guarantee the best way people learned the techniques that they liked on that was by copying it yeah because it's one thing to read about it it's another thing to watch someone do it but to do it yourself you know is the best way to learn and it's the way that um artists used to learn to paint was to uh study with the master and copy the master's work yeah. so there's nothing you know there's a, a long tradition of doing it there's nothing wrong with copying other people's work as long as you don't claim it for yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you can certainly see a lot of artists when they start off the whoever they're studying with it's a parent but then yeah. eventually they take those skills and they run with them and then they create their own style and their own voice with them which is what i think you know, everybody's capable of doing with modeling as well. Well, with all that being said, that's a good time for us to break out into the interview with Adam. Um, 
And again, I think following along with some of the photos that, uh, that we're going to post so you can understand um, what we're looking at and what we're talking about is a great idea because it's a, it's a great interview and it really brings to life a lot of his thought processes. Tetra Model Works are a leading producer of premium photo etch sets for all kinds of modeling genres. From armor to ships to aircraft and more, they make some of the best PE you can buy. And I know because I use it myself. I love it so much I even sell it in my own store. The design is outstanding, sharp and clean detail, well designed folds and easily constructed assemblies. Easy to use, their high quality brass is just the right thickness and strong so it won't break on you. Their sets provide the maximum of detail but never with parts you don't need or can't use. Instructions are clear and very easy to follow. Sold in hobby stores around the world, just look for Tetra Model for the very best in photo etch and accessories. You can find a full list of their distributors at tetramodel.com. That's tetra, T-E-T-R-A, model.com. Greetings, Union comrades. <laughs> I always want to say that with a Russian accent. Greetings, Union comrades. Okay, yeah, I promise I'll never do that again. Anyway, are you looking for some cool new threads to wear to your next model club meeting? Or maybe even out on a date? Oh, wait, yeah, we're model makers. Nobody's going on dates. So how about instead your next Zoom call with your model bros, where you just want to be the cool kid? We've got you covered. Get on over to redbubble.com and look for the Sprue Cutters store. And make sure it's the authentic Sprue Cutters store because we've got some fraudsters out there. Anyway, once you get there, you're going to find we've got t-shirts, coffee cups, sweatshirts, long sleeve t-shirts. Lots of cool swag for you to use to proclaim your loyalty to the union. So get on over to redbubble.com and get your style on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Damen und Herren, we are joined today by one of the world's premier armor modelers, Adam Wilder. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, we're stoked, man. We're glad you're here. It's nice to be here. So we're going to do something a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. Instead of getting into real deep conversations that kind of flow into technique and things like that. We're just going to kind of jump straight in. We're, we picked a few models that we want Adam to talk about. Um, we'll provide links for those in the show. So by the time this is airing, you'll be able to look at these models as we're talking about them or at your leisure. We've each picked a, a single model and we're going to pull up the visuals for ourselves and we're going to have Adam kind of talk us through it. So where would you like to start, guys? All right, let's start with this one, the Panther F. Panther F. Okay. All right, so I picked this one. So yep. um, I'll just tell you a little story about this one, Adam. I got back into modeling, uh, I don't know, about 20 years ago, something like that. And uh, I got back into it in the way a lot of people do, just picking up kits, building them, following a couple of magazines and what have you. And one day I walked into WH Smith. So this was on, it was on news agents here. And this was on the cover of AFE Modeler. This, the first time I've seen the magazine, the first time I've seen any of the models, I picked it up, and this was the model that 
changed the way I model, that made me want to model a bit differently, uh, you know, and a, a bit of a different kind of level, so, so to speak, rather than just slapping some paint on and uh, putting the stickers on and calling it done. He actually cried so, in the store. I did. I went home <laughs> and I said, oh, now, this also was an article about color modulation, which a lot of people will remember, uh, you know, as, as sort of around the time that that sort of thing became really big and blew up. It was a little controversial, yeah. Yeah. So what can you tell us about how you sort of arrived at that, that technique and on this model? Well, color modulation before this I've been working on for a while, but I can never, um, with the gradients and everything, I, I was... I found that I, I wasn't doing it enough. Like the gradients were a little too subtle. So after when you you airbrush it, you know, and you blend on oils, you add washes, you do the chipping, you do the weathering, and what other effects and details, it, it kind of almost nullified it. The first one I did was on a, um, a group. Uh, it was a it was a primer red one that I bought to um, that I brought to Euro Militaire. And I did really well at that show with it, but it still, it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And there was a few projects I did at make productions for the box art where I was trying it. I think this was my, uh, probably my fourth or fifth attempt at it. And yeah, I finally got to a point where I could exaggerate the gradients just enough and where this one, it just seemed to come out. The weathering, it, it, the weathering didn't really nullify the effect, nor the oils. And, um, you know, this, people were already using some gradients before. You know, when I was already kind of playing around with this also, it gave me added confidence. Okay, I'm not the only one. That, you know, maybe there really is something here. And, um, uh, it, it, but it, this model to me, it wasn't just the color modulation. You know, I had also perfected um, the speckling on it, another technique I've been using a lot of. We can talk more about that later. And I, I just, I loved the subject. I wanted to build this panther or this this variant since, oh my God, since the, the mid-90s. I, I loved this. I loved the E50, you know, the, the one in the Tony Greenland book that came out again in the early 90s of Panzer Modeling Masterclass. And paper panzers, you have total creative freedom with them, to a limit, of course. For example, with this one here, I, I wanted to make it, or some of the others will talk about, um, I wanted to make it look as much like a, a regular panther as possible, but I knew the turret and some of the other details would set it apart from the others or inter, uh, or mixing the, uh, the older rubber-rimmed road wheels with the later type uh, steel road wheels and, you know, the, the primer red components. And I just had a blast with it. And the kit was, it's a kit that's, it's a cyber hobby, is it? DML Dragon? I, I don't remember. And it was, it's such a beautiful kit too. And this was when I, I was at Make Productions. I was working there all day. And then I would come home and uh, I would do this all night. That's how much I was into this. And I was single and I was I would model all day at work and come home and model all night long 
you know, go get up the next morning to go into work and uh, already still a little tired from staying up the night before and do it all over again. I think my downtime was uh, walking home from work down this this trail there and stopping at a, a bar, getting a beer and a tapa and then going home, answering emails and getting right back to it. That's, that's just how much I was into it. I had a lot of ideas I wanted to share with people. And the the whole color modulation thing, it's just a way to, to break up components and add contrast. You know, I'd bring it in to work and Mig Yemenez was there and he would, him and I would look at it and come up, come up with, uh, you know, like he had mentioned, uh, I think he said, put on that anti-aircraft plate on the top. So I scratch build that and put it on now all the, see, that would have never have happened because. I later read that the um, the top of the Panther F turret, they actually thickened the armor so the Germans wouldn't have to make these improvised armor plates to put on top of the, the turret to protect them from aircraft. So if you really think about it, with a thicker plate on the top of the turret, they really didn't need that. So, you know, you got you know, like Voyager and all these aftermarket companies had made PE sets for this thing and put that armor on top and it shouldn't have been there. It, you know, there was no need for it, but it looks cool, you know? So between the people I was working with, um, you know, this is what I did, you know, the, and, uh, you know, they'd give me their thoughts. And, uh, it, you know, I think a lot of it is being in clubs or people you work with or having friends in the modeling community around you who you can talk to and bounce ideas off of. And it, it can really add to your confidence or maybe make you second guess some things. And in this here, it just every, the timing on this thing was perfect. I, I, there was a bunch of techniques I was, that were kind of coming together that I was mastering. I become confident with other mediums like the weathering products I was using. It was a fun model to do the, you know, the skid plate armor on the side that was just another way to um, add my own little personal touch to it, not putting fenders or tools on it to give it that kind of that plain Jane look, which I've always kind of preferred over a, too much small bits and pieces on them. Like a Panzer four, it's very busy, all yeah. kinds of tools on there. You got the, you know, you got the shirts in, it's on the turret and on the hull, you have the fenders and it's just a lot of detail where I love these large, larger, heavy German subjects. Cause uh, even like the King tiger, you can make them look, uh, you got those big plain sides and you can add a lot of effects to them. It gets a much cleaner body to work on. It's a much cleaner body to work on. And of course, with less details, it's easier to add those effects like rain streaks, oil streaks, wet effects it's it's so much funner to add those effects to it and and it's easier to work with in that manner you know like the same thing with the 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 rear of the vehicle you have the um you have the grease dripping down from the different components and you know it's just it, it was it was a really fun time it's quite funny you say that um you don't like detail because you add a huge amount of detail to models this one's covered in stuff it is, but still, you've got those big sides to work with. Yeah. You know, the hull and the turret. On the top, it's easy. You don't have to worry about streaks and stuff like that. You can just give it all a muddled look because kind of gravity's holding it in place on those flat surfaces, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I, I, I agree with you. Depending on the subject, yeah, I'll make it busier. With this one, I, I didn't want to do that. The thing I like about the detail that you add is all of it goes to 
uh, individualize the build? Is it really important to you to make a model that doesn't look like anyone else's? Uh, of course it does, because if I make one that looks like everyone else's, it's not that fun because I've seen it all before. Yeah. So, for example, my next uh, upcoming project in the next year or so is a uh, one of the early Tiger ones in Leningrad, and I got all the I got maybe you two, maybe you guys can help me with this. Is I got all the the goodies. I spent a lot of money on the tracks, the photo etch from you know like Aber, the gun barrel. I got the the kit. I got I bought the PE parts to make the one with those large um what's it called the Rommel casting on the side those large bins in that early oh, yeah, yeah. This, was it um, yeah they, um, a bit like an elephant with one either side isn't it right and I, I started looking at that and I'm like okay I found photos of each side of this thing so everyone knows what it looked like so now I have absolutely no creative license with it. So I don't think I'm going to do this one now. Um, maybe I'll do one of the other ones that wasn't photographed so much, and then I can do some of my own things to it and try to pull off one of those famous winter tigers that maybe for some reason sticks out a little bit for me or looks a little different to me. I've got to say that's why I never do a tiger, because it's so hard to do anything original with a subject that well covered. You got to be real careful on, um, especially if you're doing this professionally. You you got to be careful as to the subject you choose, and it's a lot of. Um, what, I don't know how many nights I've sat there and spent all my modeling time just sitting there on the internet doing research, going through the books, sending emails to people. Hey, you know, what about this? What do you think of this idea? What if I did that? Um, you know, I bounce pretty much a lot of this, not everything, but. You know, subjects like these German subjects we're talking about where you got to be careful with the creative license. Yeah, I usually talk to people on those. Very seldom do I do anything by myself, particularly with these German subjects. Some of these Soviet prototypes I've done, I've been through Kabinka. I've taken photographs of all <laughs> around them. And um, I can I kind of know what I'm doing. I know the look that I want. I know it's going to be kind of a, uh, you know, 46 subject because I don't want to just make a prototype. I want to have it. I'm supposedly out in the field. I think it just gives it so much life. And I think with this Panther F, you if you're careful and you you think about where you could add the battle damage, what you can add to it, how you weather it, you could take a subject that never existed and again give it a lot of life and make it look alive. And and that's that's where that's very enjoyable for me. The photo from the from the front, I think, is the one I wanted to to ask a question about. The one thing I noticed with, um, you know, the, the color modulation, the yep. the added uh, armor, uh, anti-aircraft armor, and, and red oxide, the yeah, it's you create all of these different areas of interest uh, by using different colors and different textures, but there's something really harmonious about everything that's going on, like even the the green wheels that are added on the uh, left side, it, it all blends in so well. Mm -hmm. um, it's just interesting. The color choices are, are in some cases vivid, but they're all really harmonious and, uh, and they all just work naturally together. Well, there's a few things that help with that. Um, the blending of the oils, the oil colors you pick will start to help with that. They'll start to have, um, they'll start to blend everything in together, but not too much. You know, if you know the top plate, if you look at the top plate on the hull there where the two doors are, 
there is another plate there that's bolted in place where the where those two slide and doors are for the op, the radio operator and mm-hmm. the vehicle operator. And that I painted that a whole lighter yellow just to make it stick out. But after the weathering and after the oils, and believe it or not, believe it or not, the chipping, the chipping plays a much bigger role than people think in blending everything together. So even if you're going to paint part of the vehicle this sand yellow and the other part this this red oxide, um, which almost has kind of an orange hue to it, um, you can, um, with the weathering and the chipping and everything, no, it blends together. Like the one I'm working on now um, is a Soviet subject, and I thought I'd kind of overdone it a bit with the color modulation. I think some of that is because I haven't done it in a long time. It's the first one of the time I've done this, and I think since I moved back to a, to the States and it's been over seven years now since I moved back here from uh, Europe. And uh, I, I thought, you know, you know, it's one of those things where you, you know, after the modeling, you know, while I'm waiting for Catherine to come home, I'll put it on the table and have a couple of beers and look at it. Okay. Is this too much? Is it not enough? What can I do? What can I add? For example, uh, without getting off on too much of a tangent, the wire you see wrapped up in the loop on the turret there, that was just sitting around having a few drinks one night, late in the evening, listening to music and just looking at it and thinking, yeah. what can I do? That's what that came from. And where this one I'm working on now, I've started with, you know, just, I just said, don't panic. Everything's fine. You, you're doing great. And <laughs> so I, you know, got into the oils and maybe choose the oils carefully. <laughs> and I, you know, done the chipping and I've done all the watches, and it, it's it looks fine. In, in fact, I'm now I'm thinking I should have added a little more highlights on it. So it's I haven't you know I can still do this tech this color modulation in a way where I feel comfortable with it. So I guess I'm not getting too old. <laughs> so Adam, whenever you say that you know spending time looking at it is something I I definitely want to talk about, but. Um, yeah. adding the oils and everything. Do you go back and add modulation with oils? If you feel sure like can. if you're knocking yep. your modulation back too much, that's something you definitely go back and do, right? Well, yeah, you know, that's why that's why we all call it a style because it's not just the gradients. It's how you use the oils, even the weathering. Um, the one I'm doing now and with this one too in the darker recessed areas uh, I had to change the tones I was using for the chipping. You know, you get the lighter flakes of the base coat that have been scraped clean. And then you've got the areas in the rust underneath where it's been scraped through. And you got to mess with those colors too. For example, the lighter scrapes of the base coat that have been lighter scrapes um, on the highlights, you got to make them almost white so you can see them. Where in the recessed areas, um, it's almost a sand color. And because... I begin, if you use the same color for the scraped paint all around the vehicle, it's not going to be evident and it will kind of ruin the effect in the real light areas. But in the dark areas, of course, it's going to look too light and it won't look natural. So, and, and that's another thing with mod, color modulation is it is a bit time consuming and you've got to be patient. Well, I mean, weathering takes time and, and patience for sure. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, oil paint rendering takes a long time, and it's not a magic pill. It's not a magic solution. It just takes hours and hours of nudging this side a little bit and then looking at the next side. How did that affect what I just did affect this side? Okay, I need to bring this up a little bit. I I recommend everyone, when, when you're done, stop and spend, stop 15 minutes before your time is up. Stop put it out in another room on the table and just look at it. And, you know, what, what can I do here? 
Um, is it right? And, and be hard. Don't be afraid to be hard on yourself a little bit. And remember too that almost anything is fixable. If right. you're overdoing it, mm-hmm. then okay, I got too much highlights. Well, let's have more darker oils here, or there's not enough. Okay, we'll blend. For example, the um, if you look on the turret, you got the front plate um, with the gun mounts, and you got the two side plates. You know, I, I used uh, yellow, just plain yellow oil paints blended there to break those up further, and that is a fun little technique to do. It's very enjoyable, especially um, it's easier to do on a matte surface. Then, because the oils won't adhere as good to a, a notice to a glossy surface, or that's what I personally found. So you got to be a little more careful, but it's not a big deal. If you got good oils, they'll they'll blend. So, but that that's a fun technique. You can use chip in the breakup components too. I've done that plenty of times. It's so it's a number of things that go together to make up uh, this style of painting. So Adam, can I ask a question about the chipping since you brought that up? Sure. So I don't, you know, like I said, when we were, when we were in the warm up, uh, kind of doing the intros, I'm a much more of an aircraft guy. I understand. Yeah. So I don't know shit about tanks and you can totally talk to me like I'm five because I, I, I'm just <laughs> ignorant. Sort of me with aircraft. <laughs> Well, but, but I do know heavy machinery. Uh, you know, I think I have yeah. a pretty good eye for it because like I was telling you, I grew up on a farm. So, you know, seeing yes. heavy machinery that's been rolling around in the dirt and had, you know, having the typical, you know, kinds of abuse that dudes who are busy and in a hurry, uh, you know, will heap on something like that. Sure. I, I, I'm, what I'm always curious about is the chipping subject when it comes to World War II armor, because you know, you, you get these guys who are like, well, but it never chips because it wasn't in combat long enough. And there's all these different rationalizations for it. Mm -hmm. And so just as, just as somebody who's not an armor modeler, but who follows these discussions and who has seen plenty of beat up vehicles, how do you, how do you address that? Like, what do you, you know, what's your philosophy on that? It's probably worry a, about it. probably oh, yeah. a question you've answered. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just got the only answer that matters. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But come on, isn't it much more fun to maybe make it look like it's been out there for five years? And by the way, you know, I usually go over the top with the chip in a bit because once that thing is weathered, a lot of that's going to be hit. So one or hidden, excuse me. So once you um what what areas where the the earth isn't covered, the chipping will still be visible. And honestly, you know, some of these pans of force and stuff, you know, they did spend a lot of time outside. And, and you know, the Eastern Front, it wasn't an easy place or, or any battlefield for that matter. So uh, I, and I've always kept the chipping as much as I do it. I try to keep it fine enough where even if it is a little too much, it still looks natural. As long as it looks natural, I, I think you're okay. Does that make sense? No, it, 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 it does to me. I think it's a great answer. Uh, I mean, it just has to look authentic. There's got to be a story yep. there that you know that that yep. makes sense. And and the truth is, I mean, look from working on a farm, uh, it, it 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 takes five seconds for somebody to drop a hammer on something and knock a chunk of paint off, or people climbing you know, on it. Uh, yeah, but you yeah. also got to even something like this. Come on, I mean, this thing was fighting you know in Berlin. You know, you come on, you got artillery coming in you got buildings falling um there's all you know people shooting at them there's all kinds of ways that the paint on these things can be scraped up damaged so i really 
don't think even now that we're talking about it, I really don't think it's anything that's too exaggerated. And a lot of the, um, the subjects like this people are doing now, they usually, anyone who seems to know what they're doing, they research it and their experience with the techniques, because let's face it, <clears throat> as a modeler once told me, it all comes down to practice. And he's right. It's practice, practice, practice. Actually, that does bring me on to something that, that I've been thinking about listening to you talk. That- sure there's a lot of confidence but also patience in what you do and i think that's something modelers could really those that maybe are having trouble maybe they could consider slowing down because mm-hmm. familiarization with with um techniques brings confidence but patience gives you the chance to address things as they come up rather than too late because you've already moved on two or three steps yeah well what i would recommend to anybody is just build them and paint them and yeah. you will learn as you go and that's how I, I didn't win a I didn't win an award at a show for years and years and years. And I finally got a third place at one of the local shows. And some of it I wonder is if because they knew me or not. But it was a pretty intricate camouflage that I hand painted, but it took a while. You know, it really took a while. And it's just being humble, watching the work from others, and even when you get to it even when you develop a decent reputation, you still got to keep an eye out. What is everyone doing? You know, and don't be afraid of if, to run with someone else's idea. If you like what they're doing, take it and try to build upon it or, or try to learn it. That's why we, that's why we have YouTube channels. That's why we write books. It's, mm-hmm. it's not all about us. It's trying to make the hobby grow. You know, I, I read, and still watch a lot of YouTube videos right now from other modelers to see what they're doing and just to make sure I'm on top of it. Maybe I can get an idea or something or another step to add in, or another layer to add to the weathering steps I do. Yeah. And I, I think again, touching back on the point you made about stopping and looking like whenever I'm working on a model, you know, I, I have it within eyesight of my computer yep. and I walk, you know, into another room you know, if I'm in the kitchen, I walk back to the bedroom. Sometimes I come in here and turn the light on and take a look at it, move it around. And I just, sure. I just study what I'm doing and I, it's self critique. Like I'm looking yeah. for, I'm in my head, I'm trying to plan what the next thing I do whenever I sit down at the bench, but I'm also looking at what I've done and see if I'm happy with it and, and analyzing like, okay, this, what I've done so far on this is good, but this needs a little more. And it just, you can, you can do a lot of modeling with your eyes by self-critiquing your own work. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's some deep wisdom right there. And, and, and the, and the corner of your eyes, like I think it's important to have it sitting over to the side and where you're kind of looking at it sidelong and not really focusing on it because Mm -hmm. sometimes your peripheral vision will pick up a pattern or a, or a disruption that you won't necessarily see when you look at it directly and you'll go, oh, you know, that, that could use some attention. Yeah, well, I've done that before, too. Or, um, you know, having the gloss coat, you know, before you start the weather and you, you shoot a few few coats of satin over it and realize, oh, my God, that thing is glossy. We're going to be adding a lot of oils to this one to kind of <laughs> at least matten it out a bit or bring it down to a, a satin finish or something. And, oh, there's going to be more weathering than I anticipated. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, uh, but again, if you can, even if you stuck, uh, like the first one you put up that E50, I made, I, Oh, I'll try a new technique on this one. I got this really cool idea and I almost ruined it. So I had to, um, you know, I had to add a few metal plates on the side and uh, I had to add a little more weathering here and there. And in the end it came out well, it seemed to go over really well and I even sold it. But, um, that was uh, that was a stressful one, you know. I didn't try that technique again, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Which technique was that? Yeah, everybody's gonna uh, want to know. I found some. Where was that? Someone had sent me a picture a long time ago of this. It was an Abrams, and it had these large grease areas on the front hull, the glacis on the turret, and I'm like, I want to do that on this. And it, but for some reason, I, I, you know, me being at the time, maybe I'd just become a little arrogant. I don't know. I didn't have the brains to first practice it on a test piece, or maybe I didn't want to taste it, take a piece of sheet plastic and paint it all up and weather it like this. I didn't want to devote the time to it. But, um, I, you, if you're going to try something new and you got this thing going, get a piece of sheet plastic, paint it. What I do now is when I start painting a model, I'll take a piece of sheet plastic and I'll, I'll do all the same painting and weathering steps on each one yeah. for testing. That's a, that's a great tip. You know, you come up with, in fact, the, uh, I, I, the last few projects I've kept them and I put them in my display case next to the models. So, um, and I've never photographed them and put them online and maybe I should, but, um, that is something and ever since I had E50 and again it came out and I'm happy with it but now I have test pieces too that I paint right with it yeah but as you say everything's fixable sometimes you dig yourself a hole yes. where you have to really fucking dig to get out of it but and on top of that I'm sorry to interrupt on top of that it changed the whole look of that E50 and I think maybe a better model resulted from it yeah. Yeah, that can for sure happen. I just love hearing that you take that time to to look because that's that's mm -hmm. validation for me. Like, you know, I I'll tell people I'm just letting the model talk to me and they're like, "Bro, what kind of weed are you smoking?" I'm like, <laughs> "Look, you just you just let the thing sort of tell you what it needs, right? You you look, mm -hmm. you you have an open mind and and you just let it tell you what it needs and I think that's way better than forcing it to try to be something. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I ever looked at it that way, but that's not a bad way to look at it. Now that you say it. I mean, that's, that's kind of what's happening whenever you're, whenever you're self analyzing the model, like you're just mm -hmm. going over it and, and finding out. Maybe that's yeah. Like maybe you could say that that may be the same thing sitting there after and just looking at it and seeing, okay, am I where I want to be? What do I got to do? What could I add? Uh, what shouldn't I have done? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're looking at the the back end of the Panther F right now. And I'm yep. like, first of all, my favorite thing is that that whole back plate uh, outside of the exhaust is is this really nice green. The the dust accumulation down on the bottom being broken up by all the the sort of moisture effects and then the, the oil effects coming down through that. It's just so much texture, but my favorite thing is where this uh, this uh, the toolbox on the back is missing, mm -hmm. and you, you've got this clearly uh, good sized red oxide patch, 
And in order to kind of break that up, you've got this cool just splash of mud, you know, mm-hmm. real dry mud everywhere, and then a little bit of moisture in there. And it, mm-hmm. it breaks up that big area of red in a way that it doesn't hide the red, but it, it doesn't let the red steal the show either. It doesn't, your eye doesn't pull over there to that red. You can move all around the back end of that model. And then that little splash keeps that red toned down enough that it's not kind of stealing the show, but there's so much to look at right there. And, you know, I never quite looked at it that way. Now, you know, hearing the way you described that, I just weathered it with the rest of the rear end of the thing, you know, but I, I, guess, I, I guess it just kind of worked out. But you made out it sound pretty way. clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're giving me an ego. <laughs> I just weathered it with the rest of the the vehicle, but here's the thing. You would say it sounds dumb, but you see those at the top of that, at the top of that, uh, that red oxide area, you got these two little brackets up there where the, the toolbox slid onto. It freaking took, I don't know how long. I'm like, okay, how did they put those toolboxes on? How did they put them on? How did, and finally I found a photo, like a Yag Panther. And, uh, and I had to make sure it was one of the later variants. So I wasn't, cause you know, you put that on links or, you know, back then on those <laughs> web pages and they, you know, boy, oh boy. I feel you, you like flies on shit. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, I just I remember Mike Rinaldi once he put something up and someone said something and like responds um yeah I know how you guys are about this stuff I'll I'll look into it <laughs> I was, I was like yeah I feel for you brother I just kept my mouth shut <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of listeners are going to be glad to hear that you guys went through all that same stuff oh yeah no it's part of it but you know as I've gotten older I mean I got you know I'm going to be fifty soon. And, um, you know, when you're young and you, you're coming into this and you're trying to develop a name, you know, you get all worried about the critiques. But I've found lately I, I enjoy those the most. <laughs> I know that sounds nuts, but. No, you're, you're preaching not. to the choir no, here. That's, yeah. that's Yeah, that's our favorite you know, thing. The, again, the recent one I put up, someone said, well, you know, it had the color modulation. Someone said, well, it just doesn't look natural. It looks a little splotchy, blah, blah, blah. And um you know, again, I, I'm I'd already, I had already moved on from that point, and I think it looks okay. But I'm like, no, that's interesting. You know, you want to know what people are thinking, how they're looking at it. You don't, you just don't want to hear the compliments all the time. You, you want to hear what people think, and it, it helps you kind of structure what you're doing too. Absolutely. It's, and getting another person, you know, fresh eyes on a subject, they can spot things that you're absolutely in love with to the point where you love it so much that you can't see if there's anything wrong with it. Um, yes and no, maybe. Uh, there's been stuff I've been afraid to drop and it went really, it went over really well, turned into some of my most successful stuff. And there's been stuff that I put up there, wait till they see this and they walk <laughs> right through it. And like, okay, I got to take a step back on this a bit. And so, you know, of course, you know, you try to, when you post stuff, I try to keep it, you know, this is what I did. This is what I used. I don't really say much about what went through my mind when I did it or, you know, I just, you know, I've been working on this for the last month, the same time teaching and blah, blah, blah. And uh, um, I, I, I don't talk about what I was thinking. I don't talk about what I want to draw their attention to. But instead, I wait to watch their comments and see what they say. And if they say it in the comments, 
then I did what I was supposed to do. I don't want to push them anywhere. Yeah. I want them to look at it. And that's another thing I try to do. Um, I'm sure some of the other ones we'll talk about after this one. Um, we'll see some examples of that and, and we'll talk about that. But when someone brings out something you you purposely wanted them to see or something you purposely spent time on or some effect that you hadn't seen done quite like that or done before and someone catches it, um, that that's very rewarding to me. And usually I'll say good catch or, you know, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, I, I really enjoy that. Well, it, I guess it shows that what you're trying to get over is getting over, but in a really genuine way, because like you say, you haven't led them to it. You haven't sort of um, hinted at them to say it. You've just let them find it for themselves. Yeah, you know, it's like I got, you know, like I know there's three or four modelers out there I bounce stuff off of. <laughs> Friend of my German modeler, uh, Sven Fritsch. Um, oh, yeah. When I messed up on that E50, I sent him some pictures. Hey, uh, what do you think of this? Oh well, oh, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, that's all I need to hear. <laughs> you know, that's okay. We got some backtracking to do, and uh, I think I'm gonna go take a walk and calm down. <laughs> that's when I was doing it, you know, professionally. You know, this is golden, though. I, I mean, everybody listening to this, I think, is breathing a huge sigh of relief to to just know that you know part of it. Mat- yeah, I mean, well, you know, to know that the masters go through the same kind of angst that all the rest of us do is, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's golden, I think. Because a lot of dudes, you know, they get like super stressed out about it. But I, I think all three of us, and it sounds like you do too, really feel like that that feedback is liberating. I mean, it, it, it frees you, you know, from your from the tyranny of your own ego and lets you just be you know, lets you be creative. And, and, and if it doesn't read the way that you want it to read, then you fix it, you know, and, and it don't just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful process if for people who embrace it. Okay. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. This one, this um, is one, this is one I picked, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, that's right. Uh, tiger, I think. Can you say that again? Geschutzwagen? You can never say that right. I, I don't even bother. You know, thank God most of the time I'm talking to people, I'm just typing stuff out and let them pronounce it. <laughs> they want to pronounce it. Even then, I have to check the spelling three times. Oh, man. Yeah. The Germans oh, will correct you for sure. Can I, can I tell you why I picked this one? Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> a former well, welder, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's you. You nailed it. You nailed it because yeah. I, you know, I don't. I don't know this thing from a hole in the ground. I have no idea what this fucking tank is. It's, you know, it's got a big, got a big gun. Yeah, tank. That's it, a great adjective to use, you know. I mean, it's the I, there. You go. It's not a tank. It's uh, this is a tank destroyer. Is that right? Um, yeah. How that worked? Um, I don't know a lot about it either. I just thought it looked really cool. Right. It's just dope, yeah, and it's got lots amazing. of great real estate for for. Uh, <laughs> But, but so, so my, you know, my questions are going to be considerably less sophisticated than these other guys will ask you, but. Oh, that makes it easier on me. (laughs) (laughs) But, but what immediately caught my attention about this thing and about a lot of your work is that when I look at this thing, I immediately recognize somebody who has iron and steel in their blood. I I mean, I, I can, I can see somebody who's worked steel plate I can see somebody who's burned a lot of rod, done a lot of welding, done a lot of torch work. 
I mean, how do you, I mean, am I on the mark there? I know you have iron working in your, in your career background. Yes and no, honestly. Um, The, when I, this was the, let me think. I think this was the third model that I painted like this to paint it, to look unpainted. And um, I had done a, a Czechoslovakian Hetzer before this. And of course, parts of other, the, uh, the Panther F, you know, that played on top to help them from aircraft attack. Was your first one, the naked desperation, the, the T-34? Oh my God. There you go. I forgot all about that one. There you go. Okay. So this was the third one that I painted like this. The T-34 was more from the welding background. And I, it was at a, you know, I'd heard, you've all heard the rumors of the, uh, the T-34s in Stalingrad being sent out unpainted and without sights. And, uh, I remember I was at a welding competition upstate in central Maine. And, you know, there was a competition for uh, high school students, you know, graduating in the trades, and there was a there was a dumpster out back, and I went out back and just took stole a bunch of steel plates from it, threw them in the back of my car, <laughs> and um, I mean yeah, throwing them out. So I don't think I was officially stealing anything from a school, but <laughs> yeah, that was how I painted that. And you know, those like those orange rusty lines you see on the side. I had noticed that because if you leave plate out in inventory for long periods of time, whether it's outside in the rain you know, the water is going to seep in. It's going to form these, all these, see what, what, what's awesome about painting steel plates is you just have endless ways of adding different effects with the rust, the gray tones of the steel. And you can use that to break up flat surfaces, um, add, uh, to help distinguish different details, add contrast. It was, it's, it was just perfect. And when I started painting that, I really got to see it. And don't forget, you know, add the dust effects to further break everything up. Sure. Um, getting back to what we were talking about, that, that, oh, that shit's wagon tiger. <laughs> thing. Um, that was, <laughs> that was spending a lot of time researching the internet, trying to find plates with uh, rust effects I hadn't done yet. And that I, I had a folder with hundreds of photos of, mm-hmm. of uh, rust, rusty plates that I had found. And I just went through, okay, I like this. I like this. I like this. So I created another folder, put those in that folder, name the folder, you know, lower hull sides. That's how I'm going to paint this. And then the upper superstructures, or what do you call those, those plates that protect the gun that fold down? Yeah, um, things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can see I really don't know a lot. I'm not like a Steve Zalogo with this stuff. I just enjoy painting them (laughs) and building them and trying to make them accurate. And um, I found a bunch of photos that I'd like to, that I thought would look cool in those larger shapes there and put those in a folder. So I organized everything. So I painted, you know, this each component on that model one thing at a time. And I would go through the, you know, and open the folders and, and, and open up those photos as I painted each part. And that, that was how I did it. Of course I did that using the hairspray technique. And the first time I did it on one of those, you know, the, um, the sides there that fold up around the gun, for some reason, the hairspray just didn't work. And, uh, that was stressful. So again, I had to just go out, take a walk, cool down, 
think about it. And, uh, and I, I just like, okay, obviously I, I didn't put enough hairspray on. That's all I could think of. I must've screwed up that way. So I came back, repainted the thing, did it again, added more hairspray, was, gave it time to dry. And then it, it worked. And, you know, I built that up in layers. You know, I can't even remember what color I put on first. I think I, you know, painted it like a dark oxide color, then went over it with the lighter gray um, mill scale tones, and then went back over it with the rust tones, and then, you know, added highlights around the chips using a fine brush with lighter tones of the gray. And, uh, yeah, that, that was a, that was a good one because I, I, after, you know, a lot of research and looking around, I, you know, I just happened to find, uh, these cool rust effects that I hadn't used or seen on other models that I was able to employ on this one. Um, the gun on that thing with that, green camouflage i didn't use color modulation there so i was able to go back and forth with the base coat well i I painted it with the dark yellow and then i added that that green pattern on there but it looked a little rough um so i went back over it and tightened it up a bit with the dark yellow again and went back and forth with the green camouflage and the dark yellow until i got that tight camouflage and that was what we were talking about earlier when i put it when i put it up on missing links one of the first things someone said was wow that's a real tight camouflage on the gun you got there and yeah (laughs) that's what we're aiming for so that 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 went over well the only thing was the front plate i i I don't know if i was ever really happy oh here's another little story about this one hold on i don't know if i was totally happy with the way it came out but it, it, no one ever said they didn't like it. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess it came out looking okay. But if you see those little, um, like the bumpers there on the top there for the hatches, those little primer mm-hmm. red buttons, and then yeah. you've got those covers on the on the exhaust. I didn't, you know, I was in Russia. I didn't have the typical Tamiya tones that I used to mix the primer red that I, the oxide red that I was used to. I had Vallejo paints, but not the right ones. And I, I found some Russian paint I'd never used before. I still couldn't get the right colors. So I finally, just with you know, biting my nails and trying to just make a decision, okay, it's not going to be a perfect red oxide color, but I'm going to have to use it to, to brush paint these details. And um, you can see it, it came out pretty close, but it's not quite – it's more of a red. It doesn't quite have that orange that orange tone to it. Now, if you look on the side where I painted one side to make it look like they started priming it, you know, made one side look like it was half primed that I did was able to find the, where the words are written, where the, all the Russian text is written on. I was able to get some Tamiya colors. Someone from the other side of Moscow city went into a store and sent them to me. Cause I, there, I didn't have a vehicle and I just, I didn't feel like taking the train into the city that, there was some reason I could not get into the city that week. So I was kind of on the outskirts at that time and I forgot why. And it was, I was really, I think I just, it would have took me, I didn't want to stop this project for a week. No way. Cause this thing, um, when I started it and I, I, I was 
went to Germany. I filled, filmed some of the painting of it and then for the M expression DVD and then came back to Russia. And I remember waking up the next morning in bed thinking, what did I get myself into with this subject? I'm never going to get this freaking thing done. What, you know, this is dumb, but it, it, you know, I just stayed it. I stuck at it every day and it was enjoyable. I did get the Tamaya paints to paint one side of it with that red oxide color, but there was something else I wanted to, tell you but i forgot about this thing well let me ask you this while you're thinking about that how, how did you do how did you do the chalk marks it, it's actually <laughs> oh man yeah that was another one that was um the my guy i was working with in russia obviously spoke pretty good russian and um, did some research and i don't remember what it says it's something to do with the unit that caught it and the order of lenin and all this stuff and um, I used uh, strips of Tamiya, with Tamiya masking tape to make sure everything lined up. And I painted it by hand. And wow. I used, yeah, and I used, um, I used enamels in case, right. you can in case that. I frigged it up, mm-hmm. I could just blend it. But I was finding the, the enamels, I couldn't con- totally blend them over that red oxide. So I had to go back over it again with a little airbrushing, but... Yeah, that was a long afternoon. It, it took me <laughs> an afternoon to paint that. Um, that's a, that's impressive. Well, I can work with people who, you know, they went to art schools and they can paint slogans by hand, do it really well. Where that that's always been kind of my weakness is painting text or or numbers freehand. I have to, I need to make a stencil, or I have to put on a decal and then paint over the decal with a with a tip like a, a white paint to make it look more like it's painted and, and try to get rid of some of that gloss but um it well, it, it was a lot phenomenal it, it was a lot of back and forth a lot of back and forth you know good stuff though i would have guessed that you used a like a white a white pencil or something to, you know knowing that you hand painted all that that's yeah that's pretty yes. impressive but you know i i just i got to go back to the rust thing because i i love that so much and you know, all you ever have to do, and, and this is a field trip that I think a lot of tank modelers should take, and that's just to go out to the steel yard. You know, if you live yep. in a city of any size, there's a steel yard. Go out there, you know, look at the stacks of plate steel and look at the way that the edge of all these ideas. Yeah, the chalk marks, you know, t- t- you know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, all that stuff is legit. That's totally, totally real. And, and it really does add a high level of, of authenticity to it. Um, yeah. and, and, and it underscores a point that I really believe in, even though, again, I'm not an armor modeler. Mm-hmm. But you, you see guys arguing against rust flavored chips. And my point no, is always... Well, but, but, but my point is always, look, you're assuming that these things were built out of clean steel in the first place. And that's just not likely. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't keep, they don't keep plate steel inside, you know, out of the weather. It sits out in the rain and it gets rusty and they don't, they, you know, they're not going to take the time to grind all the rust off of every single surface before they prime it and weld it. And it's, you know, so I think that's, it's a, yeah, it's this is super cool. I love it, but I don't want to go on about it. I know uh, we have other models of yours to look at, so I just wanted to gush about the rust for a minute. <laughs> um, well, the one more thing on that before we change subjects, I was also lucky enough to find, um, and I think it was in Russia, they were building a Tiger Tank mock-up for a movie. 
Oh, and, yeah, White uh, Tiger or something, wasn't it? It might have been. Yeah. And uh, I, f- I was able to find a lot of good color photos that people had taken of the in process. And a lot of the, the plates on the side of that thing, the lower hull, the uh, not the lower hull plates, but the upper hull plates were the parts that enclose the gun would pivot on. Uh, I took from photos of that that tiger they were building because they were making it out of thinner plated. They weren't using the actual thick plates of steel that they used on the an actual tiger one. They're just making it look that way. Obviously to save money and have it way less and transport it easier, I would assume. Well I guess uh, yeah, it needs to be armored so <laughs> yeah, just just making a movie with a boy. It looked good when they were done with it. It, it looked pretty authentic. It looked like a real tiger, better than the usual T thirty four with a mock up, mock up on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Huh? Was that oh, Kelly's Heroes? Yeah, <laughs> Private Ryan. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember Kelly's Heroes watching that. My father said, "What?" He goes, "Oh, this tiger song." I'm like, "What? That that's not it. That's a, no, it was a T thirty four wheels. Come on, well, look how big it was." I go, "Yeah, well, the tiger was actually bigger than that." Oh, really? Wow, you know. <laughs> this, this background just getting into it, and I, I I knew I knew enough to sound like I knew everything. You know? that's the funny thing when you get just getting into it, you're more. Ugh, about stuff like that later on you don't care yeah, you are but when you're just getting into it later you're on, really you're about right. all this stuff yeah sure later on you just you don't waste your time with the rivets i, I remember in uh in maybe secondary school and checking books out of the library on world war ii and they'll have captions like this panther tank and i would cross it out and write panzer three <laughs> well, <I never laughs> did that, but, um I, you know, you watch a lot of documentaries on YouTube and yeah, well, the Panther was uh, Germany's answer to the T-34 or whatever. And you see these, yeah, you see these Panzer threes rolling up. I'm like, well, <laughs> close, but yeah, all right. Or but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, this is the Stalin three. Well, this is another, another story behind this one. This was done. Kind of during the the it was started during the MIG productions days and brainstorming with everyone who worked in the company. This thing was supposed to have this intricate, you know, three tone camo. It was going to have a mine roller on it. It was going to have all the mattress on there like it has. And um, as I got, I ended up shelving it for a while because other subjects came up, and I didn't finish this until I was in Germany. And uh, as I got going on it. Again, this is what we were talking about earlier. I love the the IS three is one of my favorite. Um, it's one of my favorite AFVs without a doubt, and I think it's radical. Um, it's a very medicine looking vehicle, and you know that pike nose is really, it's really cool looking. I love the rounded turret, and as I got going on this, I realized. Um, let's backtrack as I started building it. I, um, I remember looking at a ground power book and it had some good close up photos of some examples that are still existing in Russia and everything. I noticed those plates on the side where the, um, those, um, that screen armor is hanging off of, you know, that actually wasn't plate. That was just bits of sheet metal and there were toolboxes there. And I, I never knew that before. And and so I'm like, okay, so this would have been 
bent up pretty easy, like I'm seeing in these these actual vehicles that were still sitting out in Russia. They those areas were bent up. I'm like, well, that's cool. I've never seen anyone do that before. And then there was a drawing in that ground power book of what the hull looked like without that that um, uh, cladding on the star, side from those uh, those sheet metal toolbox areas. And it was kind of this inverse sloped armor. And I remember, and I never knew that as much as I loved the IS-3, because I had that Tamiya kit for uh, almost 15 years before I built it. And I don't know how many times I'd sit there at night and just dry fit the parts. And what am I going to do with this? And finally, when I started building it, I realized it, it was much different than of a vehicle than I thought with those, again, that inverse sloped armor. So I remember one day I had to go meet a friend of mine in town for lunch. I was in Spain and I was already late because, you know, I, I was building this thing. and I was so into it. I just didn't want to stop. And I, I remember he was a little, he wasn't, he didn't tell me he was pissed, but I could tell he was because I got there <laughs> really late to his house. And, um, but he was a good friend of mine. But anyway, um, as I was walking out the door to head to his house, I'm like, what if I just ripped off one of those whole sides and had that inverse diamond showing? I'm like, well, that's way too radical. They're not going to want They're not going to swallow that. But then as, as, as I was leaving, I'm like, but why not? Who's done that before? Um, and, and that I'm like, just, just go for it. Just do it. So, you know, I rebuilt, you know, I cut off those sheet metal sides and, um, you know, scratch built that sloped armor on the inside and then rebuilt the the siding from copper sheet where I was able to put the, the impact holes in it and the small dents. And, um, and then that, that became, this is one of the, my personal favorites that I've done. And I think it's been kind of influential and when painting it you know you got to put those large rust areas where the sheet had been ripped away and then the mattress armor you know on it we call mattress armor or the screened armor and as i was doing all this i'm like you know just having that side ripped off and having that screened armor is enough i don't need this camouflage and i don't need the mine roller i want it just to look berlin and i think if I paint it just a green, you know, add some, you know, paint it in color modulation, put a typical white stripe on it. Yeah, the white stripe will be something everyone's seen before, but all the other details like the the screened armor and the side that a bit ripped away will make it stand out by itself. But yet will it will still look normal enough and not too exotic and real like an actual vehicle that was in Berlin. And I'm and I, I kind of hemmed it hot over that for a little bit, but then I I'm glad I went with that decision. I, I'm happy with the way this one came out. And I, I still have this one today. I never sold it. Yeah, it's a unique view of that vehicle that you don't see at all. I've said this before and I, I said it in my books is if you if you could take a popular subject that's been done many times like the times like this and do something that gives it a totally different look without making it look too different. Mm. And I know I'm, I'm not saying this well, um, but if you can add a twist that no one's done before, I think that makes it stand out. You know, I think you got something that's going to be influential and also remembered by people. Yeah, absolutely. You're building something unique and mm -hmm. you know how many, 
I, everybody loves looking at Panthers, but if you throw something, a Panther that's different on the table, it's it's more memorable, you know? Yeah, well, the one you brought up earlier, the Stalingrad T-34 I do, was, that was unpainted. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'd seen that. Something I'd seen them do a couple Stalingrad T-34s and fine scale models, but they just, you know, they just airbrushed it with different coats of rust. Where with that one, I tried to, you know, you don't want to start with painting it with a, a metallic color like a, you know, like Model Masters, um, you know, metallic gray or something. You know, I went over that with just regular acrylic grays that you would paint any any regular civilian vehicle with or anything and that's how i got that steel look and that gave that t34 its own look where with this style and it was the same thing i I, i'm like no i don't need a camouflage and i don't need a mind boom on it i I don't need any of that that would be way too much i want people to focus on the the shape of that sloped armor and i want people to focus on the um uh the screen armor that i put it on is put on as well and again talking about subtleties and uh you know i've seen a lot of people since then make uh soviet armor whether it's the t10 the is7 this one with part of the sides torn away showing that slope that inverse slope armor and those are awesome looking models they are and it's also nice to know okay i I was able to influence these awesome modelers a little bit. I think what you've brought into it that, that again, I really love as an observer with no tank knowledge, but mm-hmm. with plenty, but with plenty of knowledge about heavy equipment and farm repairs. Cause like I grew up on a farm, you know, where, where my dad was not going to drive to town to get brand new clean steel. He was not going to go get yeah. the right tools. He was, he was a child of the depression. So he was just going to make some shit up and, and, and get, get back in the, you know, cause it, it was all about getting back in the field. And I think what we as model makers tend to forget is we're real picky and detail oriented and real methodical. That's just our nature as model makers that we tend to want everything to be perfect. But the yep. reality, the reality of these vehicles is they were not operated by and large by that kind of guy. Right. Mm-hmm. They okay. were oper- they were operated by some dude who had you know a, a, a sergeant major over his shoulder screaming they're at him yep. to get right. They're scared. They're in a hurry. Under a lot of pressure. Don't right. They don't have a lot of resources. They're just making do with what they've got. And yeah. And, and what I love about your work is that you bring that sort of of authenticity out because again, I think you draw you you draw on your life experience. I think in in iron work, you know, because mm-hmm. look people do weird shit, right? And, and you, you as modelers, we do weird shit, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's all weird shit, but, yeah. but you know, the, the idea that some guy is going to go, Oh, you know what? Maybe if I welded some expanded metal on the side of my tank, I won't die. Right. Yeah, I would be trying anything. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Paint him hot pink. If it's going to make a difference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What I like about this oh. one is, um, yeah, it, there's kind of a difference between realism and plausibility and and um the realism to me is like the slavish devotion that some people have to getting it exactly the right color to making mm-hmm. it like it would have been exactly and no sort of little personal touches or additions or what have you whereas this one's plausible it might be that you didn't see this on an is3 in berlin but you could imagine that you'd see it on an is3 in berlin and the plausibility, sure. it, it's realistic, but at the same time, 
you've got a bit more room for imagination and for a bit of creativity. Absolutely. And and talking about, you know, subtle things, um, the wires in the uh, the hatches there, Mm -hmm. I never knew those were there. The Abra set that I bought had those in the instructions so like oh boy <laughs> i can yeah i can add those and or you know the handles being painted red i don't know That's if they're awesome. painted red or not <laughs> i don't know i just it was like um i did a t34 too uh it was an italian t34 and i did the same thing i painted the handles red and i i don't know if i saw it somewhere i don't know i can't remember but i i just like just to give it some color and, and you know i dropped it on links and someone said well i like those red handles like okay that's it so i copied that idea again on this one you know with the handles here it just adds some color so i think every now and then you can cheat like that and, and you know um and, and if it's subtle and, and you can get away with it, you know, have some fun. And if and if people are going to get up there and harp on you on something small like that, well, hey, it just gets generates more discussion over your piece anyway. So, you know, maybe back in missing the missing links days, you'd have, you know, twenty something responses, which looks a lot better than fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to look at it that way too, right? Yeah, there's well, nothing you... worse than missing links and dropping your stuff, going back a couple of days later, and there's no one. There's yeah. nothing. Oh, yeah. oh man, yeah. okay, it sucks. I get it. I'll try again. <laughs> uh, someone said that to me a long time ago. Um, they said, "It's not when people insult your work." He said, "It's when people say nothing. That's when you need to re- really rethink." Yeah, you know. And I thought that was real good advice. Very much so. The only other thing I'd say about this and the, the Panther as well, I really like, a lot of people say they like German stuff, let's say, because of all the different camouflages, because it's more interesting. I mm-hmm. think there's so much you can do with a single color that really makes it pop. Oh, my God. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. I think they're more interesting, really. They are. Um, I, you know, I enjoy single colors more, too. It depends upon the subject. Mm. You know, there was one I finished recently. Um, it's got a very complex camouflage on. I think it's four four colors. And I, I'm happy with the way the model came out and everything. And, and I got a lot of comments on it. But part of me is I love that vehicle so much. I wish I'd just done the green thing again. After another you know, one. And just kept it simple. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. um, you know, I did what I did and I'm, I'm still happy with it. I, but I I do love that vehicle, huh. which is actually another variant of this one, same chassis, I think. Yeah, it it is actually. Yeah, it's like an SPG one, isn't it? Of the of this one. Correct. That's a really cool model too. Yeah, the, the what is it? The IS. I've heard it called the uh, the JSU one fifty two. Yeah, M forty five. It's also the it's the object seven hundred four. You know, I, I don't have a hard time with all the numbers and those objects. You know, it's like, oh, don't want to memorize all this stuff. Just want to paint and build the damn yeah. thing and build it. You know. Well, you need Alex, Alex Clark for that. He's the one who can oh, yeah. travel up that stuff. He'll know him off by Alex. Yeah. Who's that? Alex Clark. Yeah. Yeah. One seventy. Oh, one seventy yeah. second scale. Uh... No, I know. I know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He's, he's another one of my. You know, I, it was funny when I got into the industry, I, you know, before I got into the industry, I was, you know, I envied people like 
you know, uh, Mig and those guys who'd made a full-time thing of it. But once I was in it too, I started envying people like Alex Clark who were professionals who had decent jobs outside who just kept it as a hobby. So it's funny how, you know, don't, what if, how's that saying go? Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love your uh, attention to texture. Yeah. It's, It's something that you carry across on all your models and it's spattering and speckling and chipping. It's just, and chipping with, lighter versions of the the main color staining mm-hmm. and things like that you just everything everything you do you, you seem to have a real attention to texture which i really like well it's funny because i'm looking at this too thinking well if we were talking i was looking at the hatches and the periscope i'm like well what was i thinking when i did that effect because i actually kind of like it I, maybe <laughs> i should do that <laughs> you know you forget some of the stuff you've done a lot of aircraft modelers are coming around to the idea that those things, you know, at least in, in, in a lot of World War II combat zones, they were rolling around in the muck and, and dirt oh, man. and shit, yeah. just, just yep. like the armor was. And, and oh, you know, yeah. you, you, you can't walk on a wing with muddy boots and not, nope. you know, leave evidence. I mean, it's but, – but aircraft modelers are much more conservative. And yep. uh, I think, you know, hearing stuff like this would be good to create some crossover. What about those Gundam? Is it Gundam? I've been out of it yeah. a while. Gundam, those big robots. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like what yeah. Mike Rinaldi's doing now, showing yeah. you know, what you can do with those and going in his direction with that. It, 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 I guess just what it comes down to, whether it be those robots or, or planes or, you know, railroad, it's just fun weathering things. You can just give something so much life. And even if you really know what you're doing, you can give it history too. Yeah. Anyway, I do, um, armor, aircraft, ships, all kinds of stuff. And I think when you get to a certain place with color and with um, wear and with really working with materials and on the effects and stuff, it doesn't really matter what the subject is. Models are models are models. Yeah, I know. And, and like your name, Chris, I've been seeing in, in around for years. And I don't remember <laughs> ever really spoken to you. Those not. allegations were untrue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I assumed it for the most part. So don't worry. <laughs> but um, yeah, I didn't know you did everything like that. And, you know, I, I've had people yeah. tell me you should expand more. And every time I start to, I just, I just get pulled back in the armor. That's what I enjoy doing. That if I don't, you don't know. feel it. Don't do it. That's all it is. Really. Yeah, you know, I've always wanted to crack into the Star Wars stuff. You know. Yeah. I just, but in the end, that I would just be pretty cool. Yeah, be, I know that, that would be pretty cool to see to see what you would. You really love. Yes. Sorry, welcome. But yeah. but I totally get why people ask you. You know, because I think it would be fascinating to see what you would do with something like an ATST or. You know, uh, 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 what's the big sand crawler, uh, the Jawa sand crawler with all that rusted oh, metal? Yeah. 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 I, I, remember, I don't know how many times when I got into modeling, uh, I'd be in my late 20s watching, you know, how many times have we watched Star Wars? Come on. A lot. And, uh, yeah, and you have the, you know, you got the old VH1 with the remote. And when they had that big sand, that the Jawas, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they had right. that thing coming up over a hill. I don't know how many times I'd pause it and look at how those professionals painted that thing. And if you look at the top part of it, you could see it was initially painted in, in a different color, but it's all chipped up and it just breaks up the whole top section of that thing. And, and I remember thinking, okay, let's keep that in mind for something down the road. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
the guys uh, yeah. who built those models were great modelers. They really were. Yeah. They really were. Yeah. Uh, boy, I miss. I, I I like the CGI if it's done well, but it's got to be done well. It's like when you try to compare John Carpenter's The Thing to the remake. Is it Rob Batone or Boutine? I've heard it pronounced different ways. Who did a lot of the effects on the monster in that movie, and I still think his stuff scared me much more. It was much more authentic looking than the CGI in the second one, despite the second one not being that bad either. I watched it a few times, but the first one. Uh, have you guys seen that movie or the, or- the I've seen the original, one. but not the I've remake. The original, yeah. I've seen both. Yeah, the part with the dogs in the kennel and all—it was just really that that creativity and you know that he must have had a blast doing that monster, right? you know, and uh, with the the arms and everything. And the oh yeah, it, and it was just it was well done. Uh, that that when I was, I was very young when I saw that it made, it left such an impression on me that like wow that you know that's I want to do something like that I need to find a hobby where I can be creative that way I'm never I don't see myself ever being in the movie industry but boy if I could find something just for self to to you know to for my pastime and you know some outlet you know I used to draw a lot and even even playing an instrument for a while. But for some reason, it was Armamong that just stuck with me, and that was my medium. You know, I wasn't really good at all the other stuff. <laughs> I don't think you have to be good at drawing to be. I I don't know. There's there's something between people, really good armor modelers, maybe aircraft modelers too, are mm-hmm. who are people who draw as well. I don't know. There's there's a handful of people out there, and I'm starting to wonder like. I don't know. Is there a connection between creativity and and just having a different outlet being modeling? A lot I, of I think there totally is. Yeah, yeah. That's why some, some people call call SMCG the scale modelers photographers group because it sometimes seems like half of the people in there are professional photographers. Oh, isn't photography such a big part of it if you're going to do this yeah. professionally? Yeah. And that that brings up a whole nother point, as you all know, you know, as someone who posts a lot on social media and, on, and, and before that on, you know, sites like Links and uh, Amarama, that you know, and you have to build and paint that thing, trying to view it through a lens, because that's how most of the world is going to see it is close mm-hmm. up and through a lens. And that's how every you got to treat every piece, you know, the close up shots. Yeah, not only is the digital camera an unflinching eye, um, Oh boy, <laughs> uh, it's it's also something you have to master for presentation. It it is um, it, it that you know the and I I didn't I had no idea what I was getting into when I first started and you know again you go back to like uh, Mig Yemenez and the, the patience he gave me in helping me with that part of it you know I I own kudos for that that was a big big thing for me in the beginning when i was editing um scale aircraft modeling the biggest problem i had was photography that people could build a yeah. model but they just when it, it it's the same with presentation actually you see this a lot people will build a model and as soon as the model's finished they lose lose all interest in how it the world sees it you know they think oh, i'll just put it on a table it doesn't matter it doesn't need a base or anything like that i'll just plonk it on the table and at the same time, yeah. when it comes to photograph it, I had one guy say he didn't want to pay three pounds for a piece of card to put behind it so he could photograph it. And it's like you spent all that time on the model 
just a little bit more effort to present it well for the magazine. And not just that one, but every one you do after that, if you invest that money yeah. on that backdrop. It's a piece of poster board, white poster board. You can get it at the you can get it at the store, the grocery store. I mean, I've got six of them hanging up on the wall there. Yeah, or you can get the gradients too, like mm-hmm. the flow tone ones. Those are hard to find now. Um, but maybe I ought to do a search on Amazon for those too. Buy them before they go. <laughs> yeah. No, those when I started photographing my work with that, it just added, and even going back and look at some of that stuff, boy, those 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 flow tone gradients from the white to the the, the you know that vibrant blue in the background, uh, it just added so much. It was it, it added so much to the picture. Well, the joke is that, as Chris was just chuckling, now there's going to be a run on those things on Amazon. But, <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah. but it's, it's, a, it's a thing because I was talking to Matt Bowl this morning, and I said, hey, man, I want to check out some of the VMS products because on our, on our last podcast, Martin Kovach was talking about their VMS uh, clear varnishes that he loves. And, and he's like, man, I don't have any more. As soon as that podcast dropped, they all went out of stock. I wouldn't mind, but yeah, we're not getting we... paid for this. <laughs> yeah. I remember I was, someone had asked me about the brushes I use for chipping. I said, oh, yeah, here's a link. Go right to Amazon and you know, you can use these. And, uh, and then I couldn't find them. Yeah, they were <laughs> yeah, same thing. Yeah, And I've looked for stuff Martin has talked about on his videos. Mm. And I, I can't find it either. It's all sold out. So, okay. Yeah, luckily we had, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before it dropped. So anything yeah. that I was interested in that he mentioned, I went ahead and ordered before our podcast dropped to make sure I could find it. Yeah, well, make sure you guys get me in on that loop next time. <laughs> <All right>. Tell me. <laughs> Tracy was smart. He was he had it all ordered before we even finished the recording that day. No, it does. It does. It really, it, it really um, even when he started, um, sales from my, my company went up tremendously. Yeah. Um, so no, you get someone with a YouTube channel who's good at what he's doing and he, he and, uh, he can influence sales. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, speaking of that, Adam, I snatched up some stuff when you announced that you were going to do the, the closeout thing. Um, and I am super sad that I'm not going to be able to get any more of that green masking fluid because I love that stuff. This stuff here. Yeah. The quick mask. Yeah, yeah, it's no, it's good stuff. Per, it's great, and the fact that it's already got a little bit of coloring in it—I mean, it's so handy for doing a lot of different effects. Yeah, I know. Yeah, my my colleague passed away. <laughs> and, uh, oh. Um, actually, I was I was I was I was thinking of leaving it before then because I, I didn't have a lot of time to devote to it. And there was some other stuff going on, and I feel it was just time to call it that. But um, and then yeah, I heard like a month later he had passed away, and you know he was he was a good. Uh, you know, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, you know, was, that's a tough, that was that's a tough deal, man. That was tough. I know I got a I got a stash of stuff I want to do within the next ten years, and um, I'll say next ten years. Yeah, maybe about that much. And uh, yeah, we buying the aftermarket stuff, getting the tracks and everything, and it, it all adds up. It really can be costly. And well, that's a question actually. Uh, you obviously put a lot into every model, a lot of layers, a lot of features, a lot in the build before you even go to the paint. How long does it take you typically to finish a project? 
I don't know. It's hard because you do so many sittings and then you have to get up and do other things and not to mention the photography. And um, I mean, it typically takes me a year. When I was doing it full time, five or six weeks. Wow. I was doing it. Yeah. Yeah, but that's full time. I mean, that's that's still, that's a lot of hours. Yeah. Well, I remember I met when I was writing for ASV Modeler back in the day, I met, um, you know, David Parker came over here from England. I met him at a show in, uh, where was I? It was in uh, the IP in Atlanta, Georgia. And everyone just stopped and looked at me. So, Adam, how do you finish stuff so quickly? And I'm thinking, what do you mean quickly? Mm-hmm. I devote a shitload of time to these things, man. I, I don't know. It doesn't feel quick to me when you're doing it, you know? It, well, you, five you, or six like, weeks is a couple hundred hours. I mean, if you're just doing straight eight-hour days, I mean, that's yeah. That's, well, this, and that's that's not a, that's, that's not unheard, get, not, not unreasonable. They forget you're yeah. doing it. All I mean, somebody, day. Yeah, the one I did over the summer, I had it started. I had the hall together, weather, text, not weather. <laughs> I had it textured. I mean, with the weld seams on it. So then I just had, I had to start making all the photo etch, all the fenders and all that stuff. So with doing all the photo etch and detailing it over the summer and then going into the color modulation. Now, granted, there was a few weeks in the summer where I had to devote to work and family. So let's just say, okay, six weeks. So in the six weeks, I got the thing together, primed threw on the color modulation in the oils. That's what I did this summer on one model. And so it it takes, especially again with color modulation, it takes time. And I, you know, I did some stuff on this one I've never done before. So it's, it come, you know, and as I'm thinking about this, I don't want to discourage people and think, well, to build to that level, I have to devote all this time. And that's just, Again, I think that's discouraging for people who want to – because I get – I'm on Instagram a lot more now than I am on Facebook. So I get a lot of uh, questions on there like I want to – you know, I want my models to look more like yours and get more into the weathering and everything. The thing is it it takes a long time to do it this way. And I I worry that some people – I don't want to push people away saying like what I just told you guys. It took me – you know, five weeks to get to where I am on the one I'm doing now, just from building it and painting it and doing it full time. I've seen people who build stuff out of the boxes. They put on a nice, sound, smooth base coat and just add pin washes and a couple other effects, do it in a fraction of the time. And it still looks awesome. Yeah. You know, so I think those of you out there, if you want to take it to the uh, a level like myself and others, sure, do it. But you don't have to always devote that time to have a good collection in your display case that looks nice that you can look at. That's ab- absolutely true. You like, you know, like John Bonani, you know, over on our sister podcast, I know you talked to him when you were on the, yeah, of course, on the, nice on the plastic. Yeah. John's, a, John, John's a great, great guy. And, and he, yeah, he is, but he's also, I mean, he's a great model maker, but he's also notably prolific. And he's a good example of somebody who can turn out really high quality work relatively yes. quickly. And it looks professional. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, and, and Martin talked about that on when we interviewed him last time about the, mm-hmm. you know, the kid who was doing commissions 
and kind of developed this assembly line thing and all of his stuff looked really good. He had just figured out how to be efficient and that actually helped his, his other model making to be even better. So I think there's, you know, absolutely. There's no reason you have to plow 300 hours into something. No way. Um, not at all. There's been a number of times where I'm like, I'd like just to find something I can build out of the box, a subject I can do out of the box and just focus on the painting of it and not get it so much into the photo etch. Um, well, look, um, I want to thank you guys for having me on here. Uh, it's, again, it's it's always a lot of fun. I, I, if you're always, I'm always being caught after work on these things, but boy, it's, um, you know, you come home tired, but um, then you get into this and it's not, nah, it, it springs me right back to life. It's enjoyable to talk about these subjects and I appreciate you guys listening to what I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've definitely all been in places where we're like, oh, I'm out of sorts today. I don't know if I can do the chat. I don't know if I'm going to be any good. And then we yeah. get together and start talking and it, it, it can turn your day around, you know? It is. And it's good to know that at this point in my life where I've been doing it for so long that there's people are still interested in in hearing what I have to say. And, and that means a lot. You see people come and go over the years and it's nice to still um, have stuff to talk about that people might feel is worth their time to. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's no no shortage of people who want to hear what you know hear what guys like you have to say. You know, yeah. I mean, like again, even I'm not an armor modeler, but I've known your work for a lot of years, and I've admired it. And I think there's a lot of guys who really enjoy being able to sort of get inside your brain and see what kind of things are going on in there. Yeah, well, thank you. I also think podcasts may be really good for the hobby because it's such a solitary hobby. And yeah. you're working on something, you're enthusiastic about it. There's only so enthusiastic, so much enthusiasm your your partner's going to show. You know, my wife looks at my work and is like, oh, that's really cool. You know, and I'm like, oh, but yeah, but here's what I did. And look at this. And I scratch built this. And then I did that. And she was like, okay, all right, that's great. But when you get to talk to people who are other modelers, it it just, it kind of, gives you a lot more enthusiasm. You know, it recharges that yeah. battery in a way where you're like, man, I'm ready to get back to the bench right now, you know? I was going to say, it's 11 p.m. here, and I want to hit the bench after this. Yeah, but <laughs> what you're talking about with your wife, I, I was, and I don't know if I said this in another podcast or somewhere or not, but I was working on something. It was a big German vehicle. Um, it was a the Bear, and... Um, I was at the time I was living in Russia, but I brought it back to the States and I went home for about a month. So I did a lot of the weathering and chipping on that thing at the counter at my parents' house in the kitchen with some, with some lights I purchased at, but I picked up a staples to have this overhead lighting. So I could see what I was doing. And I was there for days and days. And, and my father comes down one day and comes downstairs. He goes, son, I've been watching you lean over that thing for the past three or four days, and it still looks exactly the same to me. <laughs> that was great. I'm like, uh, well, oh, just just wait till you see the photos. Okay. <laughs> that's what our loved ones and relatives, that's what they see. You know, they don't realize everything's going to be viewed through a lens at the end. Yeah, but also they, they see someone they love really loving something and really getting something out of it and and that's nice yeah he's been my my father's probably been my biggest supporter on this um at first he told me i was spending way too much money on it but then 
when I started getting published overseas and everything and started getting invited to places like Japan, th- that whole attitude changed. Um, he was, he was all on board with it. Yeah. It's also just really fun to talk to somebody like you and pull up a model and just be able to say, okay, let's talk about this spot right here. Or let's well, talk let's about that right again here. sometime. You guys, anytime you want to do it, please. Yeah, for sure. You know, every model, I think, whether it doesn't matter if it's me or anyone else doing it, every model has a story to the person that created it, I think. And that goes for anyone who's into modeling, aircraft, everything. You get it where you uh, you look at a model and you can remember things that happened while you were doing the model. It kind of not where you were me, in it your brings life. Up memories of what I was yeah. doing at, at the time. And, and yeah, memories, you know, who you, you know, like uh, who you were with at the time, maybe as yeah. you know, or where you were living, or you know, what you were doing, where you were working. You know, just like the way smells can bring back memories and stuff. It's the same with yeah. models. Yep. As I remember when I first got into it, like Christmas morning and it's snowing outside and building a winter vehicle. There was, there was, those were the magical days. Those, that's when it was really, that's when it was really uh, a hobby, and that's what I, I've always wanted to try to capture back. Now that I'm, I'm not doing it professionally anymore. It's just that simple essence. Well, you can come hang out with us and talk modeling anytime right. you want to. Absolutely. And I, I will. And you guys, I really appreciate this. And thank you so much. Um, if there's anything, yeah, we'll do this again. And um, in the meantime, if there's anything I can do to support you guys, let me know. That's very, Thanks, very nice. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Adam. Due to popular demand, Adam's Armour, the definitive military vehicle modelling guidebooks by internationally acclaimed modeller Adam Wilder, are available as a limited reprint. Adam shares quite literally every trick in the book with Volume 1 covering construction and detailing, including a gallery of Adam's work. Volume 2 deals with Adam's pioneering painting and weathering. Elevate your modelling skills with in-depth, step-by-step images and easy-to-follow descriptions of everything you could want to ask a master modeller. Both volumes are available now from www.afemodeler.com and select hobby book suppliers. And don't forget, the Sprue Cutters Union is just one of a number of superb scale modelling podcasts. There are too many to list, but go to modelpodcasts.com to find a full list of all these great shows. All right, and that was a fantastic conversation with Adam Wilder. It's a peek inside of his brain and his thought processes and being able to to pick his brain a little bit about these models, but also just revisit a couple of old classics. Uh, just goes to show you his work is, is nigh on timeless. Um, and we're all excited for his next projects. Absolutely. They, those work, they do look as fresh today as they did, yeah. you know. And we, just, ago, we, some of them, so. and we just sat here and learned things about models that are a decade or more old. Um, and those things, I know, you know, we talked about it after the actual interview that we had, even though we had to do our interview with him a little bit later than normal, every single one of us was like, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to the bench. Um, yeah, just yeah, super, absolutely. super inspiring and really motivational. And I hope that gives... I hope that comes through in the in the interview and it gives everybody that same feeling and, and that everybody is just chomping to get back at the bench 
and do some killer work. I was just going to say, it's just really rare that you get to get inside the mind <coughs> of, of a, of a, of a, I'm going to say it, a, a master in the making. I mean, you know, we, we talk about guys like Shep Payne. We talk about guys like Verlinden. We're going to be talking about Adam Wilder in the same way decades down the road because he really has a distinct style and he's really, you know, he's one of those guys that's elevated the game. And I think it was just, it was just super cool to kind of get, you know, kind of get in there and see how, you know, where he's coming from. But at the same time, it was really nice to hear that even he, you know, goes to post his work and gets a bit sort of excited about dropping something he's really into. You know, it's not like, Oh yeah, I'm super professional now. Here's my latest, whatever. He <laughs> yeah, still gets just, that. Yeah. Still gets that. You know, will they like it? Will they not like it? And he's also still pushing his own boundaries. You know, he's trying things yeah. that he's not comfortable with to to sort of achieve a little bit more of his vision. And that's a great thing for everyone to keep in mind. That you know, the more experience you get, the less sort of plateaus you hit. You know, you're you hit those great little plateaus when you master these techniques and things come out the way you want and, and you feel great. Um, and then after a certain period of time, there's not the, there, there's not the same like excitement. There's satisfaction and, and happiness, but like you never, almost never pull something off where you're like, holy shit, that looks incredible. That looks way better than I thought it was going to look. You know, it just, it, at this point, you're just kind of happy that things come out the way you want them to. So it's nice to hear him like pushing himself and like he's going to hit those plateaus whenever he gets, whenever he nails that new technique that he's trying. And it's just inspiring for everybody else to, to just like do a little risk taking, man. Just like every project, do a little bit of risk taking so you get that little bit of high, that little bit of that little plateau that you hit where you're like, fuck yeah, I pulled that off, you know? Also, is it me or is he like the nicest, politest guy in modeling? He really, he really so is. Nice. Yeah, yeah, really he's nice so guy. nice. Unlike us, <laughs> he seemed to like us about, though. I know we joke hey, about good being t- like good loud time. mouths and you know stuff, and we don't like hold opinions back in that. But you know, we like to be nice guys, and we like nice guys too. Everybody does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so should we wrap it up? Let's yeah. wrap it up. All right, hombres, we're gonna uh, we're gonna take our leave. We appreciate you listening. Uh, if you've made it this far, uh, we appreciate you sitting through our chat, and we know you really just came for the Adam Wilder interview. So we hope you enjoyed that, <laughs> and we look forward to talking Good to stuff. you uh, and and having you listen to our ramblings in two weeks' time. So guys, the... tell us what you think. Sprucutersunion at gmail.com. Yeah, give us something to talk about, you know? Like, what? Yeah. If, you're tired of, if you're tired of hearing our, all us talking about all our own bullshit, send us something you want us to talk about. It'll be like, dear Will, you, <laughs> your podcast yeah. is great. Yeah. Yeah. Your no, co-hosts no. are a couple not, of assholes. No, do not, do not do that. Do not do that. And Chris is the boss. All mail should be addressed to Chris. <laughs> Not, not, not. Adios, bitches. See you later. Go away now.
think I'm alone now. Da, 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 da.